Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Scott Horton. Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, the editorial director of Antiwar.com, the host of Antiwar Radio on Pacifica, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, and he podcasts the Scott Horton Show from scotthorton.org. He's the author of the 2021 book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the 2017 book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and he's editor of the 2019 book, The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews, 2004 to 2019, and the 2022 book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. 
We're not going to be discussing the latter two, I presume, mostly today. We're here to focus mostly on wars, particularly U.S. wars in the Middle East. We are... We find ourselves today, again, in another horrific conflagration in the Middle East where bad things are happening and a lot of people are dying. And of course, the U.S. and its money printer, as always, takes center stage in this. And so I thought it would be great to talk to Scott because he's somebody who has spent so many years looking into these wars, understanding what causes them, what creates them, how they can spiral out of control into more and more horrible things happening and his book his book enough already is a great summary of all of these disasters and how they continue to get exacerbated over time and just get worse and worse as we get, um, move forward and of course why bitcoin fixes all of that but before we get to why bitcoin fixes it scott thank you so much for joining us absolutely thank you so much for having me all right, so um, you've been a pretty uh, vocal anti-war activist and writer for many years, and I salute you for that. You've done a lot of great work with antiwar.com, an excellent website started by uh, the late Justin Raimondo, who passed away a few years ago, which has done enormous amount of awareness raising in telling Americans about the reality of wars in the Middle East in particular, but also all over the world. So. Tell us, what is so bad about war? Why do you not like war? I mean, isn't war the health of the nations? <laughs> yeah, that's what I don't like about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Essentially, it comes down to the Rothbardian conclusion that as long as you have a war going on in a, a state powerful enough to wage one, especially state powerful enough to stay at war constantly, then you can never have anything like a limited government at home. And if libertarian capitalists agree with the Reds on anything, it's that we want to wither the state away. Somehow they think dictatorship is the path to that. I would think that we should just wither the damn thing. And so the less demand that we are for their supply on anything, the better, right? So that's why I didn't take student loans and go to or finish college either. I'm against everything that they do. And I, I, refuse to at, at any cost. I got to drive on the roads and all that crap, of course, but as much as possible, I try to avoid being the demand for whatever it is that government does. And since war is the biggest big government program of all and demands, you know, massive deficits and debts. And as James Madison, the father of the constitution who gave them the war power in the first place said, war comprises the germ of every other tyranny over man. And so it must be opposed at all costs. And and especially, I mean, if you know anything about the founding of America and our constitution, the default is supposed to be peace. And war is a very limited and temporary time of emergency in which all free men become very jealous of their freedom and their liberties and the, and worried about the danger of government encroachment. And we see as Robert Higgs, uh, I don't know if he coined the phrase, I believe he did, the ratchet effect that he talks about in Crisis and Leviathan where Every government crisis or whatever national crisis that leads to an increase in government power, it's like the ratchet turns and you get more and more control by government over the nation, over the people. And then when the crisis abates, the handle goes back, but the power never really does, right? The socket stays in place while, you know, some of the pressure is relieved. So for a, a great example of that would be after 
Truman was replaced by Eisenhower. Did he take us back to where the government was under Coolidge? No, he ratified everything that the damn Democrats had done for 20 years. And then he went on from there, right? So when I was younger, I was more of a conspiracy type. And the center of the Rockefeller conspiracy is the Council on Foreign Relations. Well, what's the point? If that's the real secret government of America is this one think tank where they really build the consensus for all this stuff, what is it that they're building consensus for? And then the answer is world empire, right? The answer is, you know, this extraordinarily costly and counterproductive attempt to take over the world, which is completely insane. If you've ever looked at a map of the world, <laughs> you know, uh, the middle part of North America is going to be the dominant force in Eurasia from now on and forever. Come on, man, it's completely nuts. And, you know, back to what Justin would say, uh, just Romando or Ron Paul or Harry Brown or any of our great libertarian anti-war heroes, uh, Murray Rothbard. That, of course, being free and having a limited government of any kind in such circumstances is just completely impossible. And look at us now. I mean, I've been talking with Ron Paul. You mentioned my Ron Paul book and those interviews. I bet you can find interviews from back in 04 and 05 where I'm saying to Dr. Paul, geez, you think maybe the economy will collapse before the world empire gets us into a nuclear war and destroys everything? And he's like, gotta hope so, son. You know, like this is what we've been dealing with this whole time is, you know, hopefully the thing will engender such a collapse at home that we'll just have no choice but to bring the empire home before it gets to a crisis point where we end up in a real nuclear showdown with Russia and China, which is, and or China, which is where we're headed, right? It's major power conflict over their refusal to bow down to the American order. And, you know, we're less likely to have a nuclear war with Iran because they don't have nukes. And I don't think America would go so far to use nukes against them, probably. And certainly they wouldn't be able to hit back with nukes they don't have for a time anyway. But, you know, I mean, that's the deal. I, I, to me, just zoom out and look at from the end of the Cold War on. You know, you can go back to World War II and the post-war order and the, the UN and the Cold War and all of that. But even if you just look at post-Cold War, and what can you say? It's just irresponsible leadership. It's George Bush, you know, doing, I mean, Panama was, was irresponsible. It didn't have that many consequences besides a precedent set. But Iraq War I was an absolute, just even on the empire's terms, it was a huge mistake that they made. It's so, supposed to be so simple and easy. And yet all it did was create all of these other problems that ended up, you know, coming really to fruition 10 years later with September 11th and then the whole damn terror war after that. And and then what are we talking about since then? It's all Bushes and Clintons ever since then, man. Barack Obama's nothing but Hillary Clinton. And and so what do we have? I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, quite frankly, was not really in charge of his government very much. And to a great degree, his administration was simply a continuation of these same policies in 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 many ways. He did intend to change them in some ways, and he did sign a deal with the Taliban to get us out of Afghanistan, uh, which he does deserve credit for that, even though he bombed the hell out of them for four years before that for no reason whatsoever, except to appease domestic interests and, and cabinet officials and office politics and crap. But he did end one war there. But essentially, you know, it's been... It's been Clintons and Bushes and Bidens and McCains in charge of our government for 30 years, and they haven't done a single thing right. And they have built at home this massive 
domestic police state and surveillance state and censorship state and all this stuff in the name of protecting us from all the crises that they've created. I mean, if you look at the censorship regime, for example, all that was born out of an effort against ISIS because ISIS was so effective at using the internet to recruit new people. Well, what's ISIS? ISIS is Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Well, what's Al-Qaeda in Iraq? It's just the vanguard of the foreigners who came to fight during Iraq War II after America invaded that country for no good reason and turned, you know, the entire Western half of it into lawless Sunni jihadi stand for five years, six years. And then luckily the local Sunni population had virtually entirely eliminated them because they're such bastards anyway. But then Barack Obama came with the defibrillator and brought them right back to life again, gave them billions and billions of dollars to fight the dirty war in Syria. And then when we talk about the Islamic State, that's just the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria, splitting away from the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. That's all that is. And so, as it, which Obama had been supporting their effort overall since the beginning of 2011, not directly supporting ISIS as much after they broke away, but just our allies, Turkey and Saudi were, but supporting all the guys who are running guns and money to them and for them anyway is not even a degree of separation, a half a degree of separation, uh, the guys that America was supporting versus those guys. Uh, so then what? So now we have to create a giant censorship regime to prevent ISIS recruitment. And that same censorship regime was then turned to enforce Russiagate narratives and COVID narratives and Ukraine narratives. And look at them now. They just kicked a bunch of leftist anti-Israel activists and journalists off of Twitter yesterday. They didn't get away with it for very long, but they were trying. And and they've been turning it against, you know, pro-Palestine activists all along as well. And it's that's just one example of the kind of just absolutely unconstitutional and and should be unbelievable government intrusion in American society and American life outside of the bounds of their constitutional limits in the name of the emergencies that they create. Same thing with the Patriot Act and the Department of Homeland Security. Now, I've heard a lot of intelligent right-wingers say, man, we should have never supported the Department of Homeland Security. We should have known they were going to turn that thing on us as soon as the Democrats got a hold of it. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's why nobody should support anything because they're going to use it against you when the other guys get a hold of it, man. Shout that from the mountaintop. Yeah, I think this is just such an uh, such a recurring theme that you see it all over, that people think that when you're in power, you can just, yeah, well, our guy is in power right now, so let's make all of this gigantic infrastructure in the state that has all these powers that can go after the bad guys What's the worst that can happen? You know, if you're not a bad guy, you don't have anything to worry about. Except in a few years, you are going to be the bad guy. You're going to be somebody else's bad guy. And that somebody else might be in power. And then they're going to be coming after you. And I think, I, I don't follow American politics much. But I mean, American politics has gotten to a point now where the judicial system is being blatantly and obviously weaponized against political opponents. And it seems like this is going to be the game now. I mean, whoever's going to win the next election seems to be pretty set on going after the other person. And we saw this with Trump when he was saying he was going to put Hillary in jail. And now Biden's administration is going after Trump. And I, yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right. You cannot separate that from the state, uh, from the state's war effort, because it's the war effort that starts all of that. Now, I wanted to ask you, when would you trace the beginning of this idea of American empire, America taking over the world? This was World War II, would you say, or World War I? 
The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, they'd always been seizing overseas colonies and intervening in Latin America. They call the age of imperialism is like the 1890s. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, look, it's, it's a neo-neo-imperialism, right? It's its own weird thing, but it's American hegemony. And it's, yes, it's the post-World War II order, especially modified since the Cold War. But essentially, look, the UN Security Council is nothing without the U.S. Army to enforce its edicts, right? So in that sense, the USA is the world government. The UN is sort of this fig leaf, this baby blue fig leaf that, you know, semi-legitimizes American dominance when we can get the Russians and the Chinese to go along. Mostly, you know, um, we have to share power with them. It's the Security Council, for those who are not familiar, is made up of the victors of World War II. The power must be shared there, but uh, that's the permanent membership is the major powers that, that won World War II. So the UN Charter, by the American Empire's lights now, is outdated and old-fashioned. What's all this stuff about national sovereignty? And in fact, the charter itself is written pretty broadly in certain sections where even critics have to admit, gee, it does kind of say that they have the discretion to define whatever emergency they want to intervene in if they do, including, you know, so-called emergencies inside, wholly within one nation state. So like when H.W. Bush, for example, launched Iraq War One, Iraq at America's, you know, basically flashing yellow light and wink and a nudge, had crossed an international border, had invaded and conquered another sovereign nation state with a seat at the UN, Kuwait. So then the idea was that's illegal and we're going to create this coalition and force you right back out again. Now they could have negotiated. They didn't want to negotiate in good faith and that's all in the book. But the point is that Again, they're enforcing the UN Charter at that point. But then look, almost immediately they turned to Bosnia. And over there, they never heard of the UN Charter before. Sovereign nation states, forget that. We support secession here and secession there. Oh, but not there. And we'll have a war. We'll support one side in a war to prevent secession here, but we'll definitely back it over there and help to tear Bosnia, or, you know, tear yeah Yugoslavia first and then Bosnia apart. 
And then, you know, culminating in 1999 with the abject theft of Kosovo and breaking off of Kosovo from Serbia, which was, you know, completely 100% against the doctrine they'd just been claiming to enforce in Bosnia, that once one administrative unit of Yugoslavia secedes, no smaller ethnic unit of that unit may be allowed to secede. And so we will not let Serbia or, or the Bosnian Serbian uh, Republic Srpska secede from Bosnia. We'll support Bosnia at war against them to prevent the, the Bosnian Muslim regime at war against them to prevent it. They turn a few years, four years later, they turn around in Kosovo, which is part of Serbia. And they go, ah, we're going to break off this ethnic con- uh, enclave because we feel like it. Right. And this is the same thing that uh, Vladimir Putin said. In fact, if, for people who pay close attention in his declaration of war against Ukraine on uh, February the 24th, he invoked Bill Clinton's humanitarian excuses in Kosovo to protect ethnic minorities. And he invoked uh, uh, George Bush's weapons of mass destruction because Zelensky had said, oh yeah, well maybe we'll withdraw from the Budapest memorandum, meaning we'll go ahead and try to start making nuclear weapons. So Putin invoked the weapons of mass destruction exception to the law there. And then he invoked, you know, with the bombing of the ethnic Russians in the far east of Ukraine and called it genocide and said that we have to intervene to prevent a genocide here, um, invoking Barack Obama's hollow excuses for invading Libya. Again, a fight wholly within the borders of one sovereign nation in which Obama and his regime completely embellished what the Gaddafi regime was doing to put down that insurrection in order to justify intervening there. And he was quite clearly being, you know, semi-serious, but also semi, you know, facetious and ironic and tongue-in-cheek about the whole thing. That when America breaks the international law and does whatever they want, these are their excuses. Well, look at me. I had those same excuses too. And what are you going to do about it? And so in that sense, you know what? There's an article by Henry Kissinger from March of 99 called New World Disorder. And for an old like uh, Bircher kook like me, I mean, Henry Kissinger was Nelson Rockefeller's right-hand man. And Nelson Rockefeller had, you know, been one of the principal authors of the UN Charter and was, you know, maybe second most important of the Rockefeller brothers. But like Henry Kissinger was his guy and the United Nations and this international order, this was their project that they had, built this world empire after World War II. Uh, these were, you know, some of the most important men behind it. And Kissinger wrote this article. It's in Newsweek, although it doesn't have his name on it anymore. You can tell it's by him. It just says by staff if you look at the Newsweek page, but it is by him and you can verify that it's other people cite it over and over again with his name on it. So you can verify for sure that it is by, and, and even if you're just familiar with his writing, you'll know it's him. But anyway, he just castigates Bill Clinton. He's doing Remember how the liberals complained against W. Bush? They said he's doing this unilaterally instead of multilaterally. And, and, you know, this, he's this Dick Cheney, right wing nationalist cowboy overriding the UN, ignoring the UN international law. Well, this is what Henry Kissinger is saying about Bill Clinton two years before, well, four years before in 99. He's saying, damn it, you're ruining everything. Part of the world order is yes, we have to accommodate Russia a little. And what you're doing by running roughshod over the United Nations process, because Russia holds a veto on the Security Council, you're ruining everything, Bill. And by going so far 
and rubbing the Russians' nose in it while they can't do anything about it. You're only sowing the seeds of further conflict down the road. And he's pissed. You can tell he's so angry. And I have to tell you, I'm angry that I didn't read that article in real time because I actually, my parents subscribed to Newsweek at the time and I would always read it when I went over to their house. And I really cared a lot about the Kosovo war. And I'm just kicking myself that I didn't read that article then. Bless you. I'm just kicking myself that I did not read that article then because it would have really, I mean, I should have understood sooner than I did about the Americans not really caring about building the UN into a world government and all that crap like the Birchers thought. But if I had read this article from Kissinger's point of view, castigating Bill Clinton and calling Bill Clinton, you know, essentially a Dick Cheney, reckless, unilateralist, right-wing nationalist, then that would have really helped, you know, with my understanding of who was really calling which shots and, and, and where the power really lied in DC by that time which was really away from the Rockefellers and the old wasps and that old order by then. I see. So in your mind, what would you say has been the motivation of American foreign policy post-World War II? What would you say has been the driving force? Well, I mean, look, it's always a big conspiracy of interest. There's a lot of money at stake first and foremost, but there's the ideology of American empire. I mean, plenty of writers have said this all goes back to the pilgrims and and, you know, the new promised land and the shining city on the hill. And and we're better. We do it better. So we're the boss. Madeleine Albright said, we're America. We stand taller and we see further into the future. And we see the danger here to all of us. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Which, by the way, what was she saying? She was justifying carpet bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia, which is exactly what got our towers knocked down three years later. So in other words, Madeleine Albright is a stupid idiot. She's just some dumb lady. What the hell does she know? Nothing. Stand taller? No. See further into the future? No. She's a liar and a murderer. But does she believe in herself? Hell yeah. You know, all these people, they're the most arrogant and stupid people. I don't know if you saw this clip yesterday. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, somebody set him up, like a, a friendly Republican set him up about, geez, what do you think is up with the media where they just keep telling such outrageous lies and they don't even seem to understand it themselves? So Ramaswamy starts asking the reporters in the gaggle there, how many of you guys still believe in Russiagate? How many of you still believe that the laptop was Russian disinformation and this kind of thing? And you could tell they don't know nothing about it. They're complete nitwits. This one lady says, well, you know, Hunter is still suing about the laptop. He's suing Giuliani. So that might mean something. But man, come on, Politico and the New York Times and the Washington Post all admitted years ago now that that laptop was 100% legit. And we know now that the FBI had their hands on it a full year or they lied to the social media companies and told them to be prepared for an oncoming Russian disinformation campaign. And then when the laptop hit, they said that was it. And we all know that. That's all true. But the reporters don't know that because the reporters are idiots. The reporters sit and watch TV all day. They don't read. They don't know anything. They sure as hell don't read books. They don't know nothing. And so they'll believe anything and they'll repeat anything. And they don't remember the last 10 times they got burned because that wasn't them. That was somebody else. 
whatever. They're the new guy. They definitely have the goldfish memory of the idea that, you know, well, the government lied last time, but obviously that was last time and we busted them and now it's over. Now look at this shiny new little uh, lie that they have lined up for us and let's fall yeah. for it. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's very true. But I think, I mean, sure, there is some ideology. To go back to my question in terms of what is the motivation here, there is some ideology. There might be some idealism driving this, that, look, we made this barren land of North America into the world's strongest country because we have American exceptionalism and capitalism and you know, cowboys and Pepsi Cola and uh, all of these amazing things. And what the world needs is more of that stuff. The world needs more of it. If, Amer if, if Chinese people and Russian people and Middle Eastern people would quit all of their backwards beliefs and follow what we do, then they'd be happy. They'd have all of the amazing things that we have too. Um, they could get diabetes and obesity. <laughs> we do. But there is some idealism there. But I think my personal perspective on this is that the wind in the sails of all of this stuff, the reason that this kind of silly idealism can have such disastrous consequences for the world, the reason that it can have so much power behind it, I believe, is ultimately down to the fact that there's a big giant money printer that runs when you can come up with some stupid excuse for uh, fighting a war abroad. And I think ultimately the wars are such a great excuse for running the money printer. Always, always have been, always will be all throughout human history. Because what gets the money printer to run is fear. Nothing gets the money printer to run except fear. If you'd look, here's how I think of it. You know, outside of the 0.1% of the population that is the most anarchist libertarian uh, like you and me, People who would say that, no, there is no excuse for government to print money and uh, intervene in the economy ever because anytime they do it, it's theft and it's going to be counterproductive. Outside of that, and outside of maybe a small 0.1% fringe uh, who are complete communists who believe the government should intervene always in everything and own everything at all times, the 99.8% probably of society exists on a spectrum of Government should do things when I'm afraid, essentially. And then they just are constantly arguing about what is the correct scary thing. Is it a virus? Is it uh, Saddam invading Kuwait? Is it bin Laden? Is it this or that or the other thing? Um, th there's an infinite array of things. You know, Is it uh, human rights in Afghanistan? Is it racism in the US? But everybody gets afraid of something and then they support the money printer for that. And so that's why... I think with the fiat monetary system, we're constantly living in this world where people just want to find an excuse to run the money printer and nothing gets the money printer going quite like war because it mobilizes people. It taps into something very tribal, very primitive, very strong survival instinct. It's us against them and they're coming for us. And that for me is what keeps this insane gravy train going all the time. I mean, ultimately, if you really think about it in terms of the national interest, none of these wars are in the interest of the average American. The average American's not getting free oil because the US has been fighting wars in the Middle East. You still have to pay for oil. And it's completely ridiculous, the idea that we are going to go to Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Afghanistan and fight all of these wars to secure our oil. Because, look, it doesn't matter who is in charge of the Middle East. It doesn't matter who is capturing it. Somebody is going to be in charge, and the best thing that they can do with their oil is sell it on the market to the highest bidder. Hey, 
Even Bin Laden said that. Bin Laden himself told Abdel Ari Batwan, uh, Abdel Bari Atwan, that what am I going to do? Drink it? Like, in other words, even if he was the king of Saudi Arabia, it would still be for sale. Yeah, I'd never heard that so, one before, but it's very true. Saddam yeah. or Bin Laden or whoever it is, they're going to be selling it, and the American consumer is going to be buying it. The U.S. government is not getting you free oil. This isn't the Roman Empire. Garrett Garrett said that in the American Empire, everything goes out and nothing comes back. So just like you say, we're not getting free oil. We're not even, you know, they say they looted all the gold. I guess they hold it hostage in the Federal Reserve. They didn't exactly steal all the Iraqi gold. But even still, it's not like they subsidized our economy with all that Iraqi gold or anything. There's no looting for the public at large. The looting comes from the American taxpayer paying for the war machine as all the money goes out. And then it's all a net loss. And, you know, anybody's, you know, next door neighbor will tell you that, well, war is good for the economy. But just think about that. And they're taking money. They're making these super expensive weapon systems with them. And then they're blowing up property, right? They're not adding to the distribution of goods and services to more people at lower prices and improving the standard of living of the people at all. I mean, if you wanted to say we need F-16s for a last-ditch defense against French invasion or whatever, I guess I'll hear you out. But at the level that they're producing, clearly all this is just a net loss to the economy um, by far, destroying property every time they drop one of those bombs. And and for that matter, all of the man hours that are lost, you take people when they're 17, 18 years old, and instead of they get a real job, they go and get this government job where they're not producing anything. There's a hell of a lot of standing around time, as they all say. And so, yes, it absolutely is a net drain on the society. The thing is, though, look at all the nation states in the world that aren't like this, right? And so the lesson from that is it doesn't have to be this way. This is crazy. I mean, why do we continue to let them lie to us over and over and continue to try to make us afraid of these things? I remember Bill Hicks in 1991 or 92 you know, in, in the Rantney mine or, or no, before that, even insane man. He's like, look, guys, there's no threat to us anywhere in the world. You know, I guess it was from dangerous. It was after sane man. It's from dangerous, I guess. There's no threat to us. We're the threat. USA is the one going around bombing all the country. And then the bit is, well, geez, Bill, what about all the countries that we arm first? And then we have to go blow them up. Yeah, well, okay, I guess you got me there. We sell them some missiles and then we got to go bomb them because now they got missiles. That happens. But otherwise... And, and this is true. Like, honestly, just spin the globe and look. There's no power in Latin America, period, in the conversation. There's no power in Africa. The only power that really matters in Africa is Egypt, and they're controlled by American sock puppets. End of argument there. There's no power in the Middle East. The closest thing they have to a power there is Persia, the Iranians, but they don't project power. And they only control Iraq because George W. Bush gave it to them. And they only have more influence in Syria because Barack Obama forced Syria into their arms to protect them from Al-Qaeda, his Al-Qaeda forces there. And same with the Houthis in uh, Yemen. India is powerful enough to be independent, but they're no threat to the United States in the next 500 years. Same for China. They're a waning power. People look at China, forget this is already a massive overextended empire. They got there long before we did. You know, they got Tibet and all the jungles south and the Xinjiang out west and the Gobi Desert and and a very significant lack of natural resources and all kinds of problems of their own. They're no threat to the United States of America at all. And then same with Russia. What's Russia a threat to? They're not even a threat to Lithuania, for God's sake. 
we're sitting here pretending they're a threat to us when, and I'm working on the book now, the entire contest in Ukraine right now is America's doing. George Bush, Barack Obama, and yes, to some degree, Donald Trump, and especially Joe Biden, spent the first year of his presidency virtually doing everything he could to provoke that war and refusing to negotiate in good faith to prevent it. And then that's it. Keep spinning the globe. We're out of even potential rivals anywhere in the world. We got Mexico and Canada, two completely tame and helpless and weak and friendly neighbors and two massive oceans that no combination of powers on earth could ever even dream of building some armada to cross and invade our country. You know, Abraham Lincoln said that if you took all the armies of Europe and Asia They couldn't take a drink out of St. Lawrence or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. If America's to lose our liberty, it'll be by suicide. And of course, he was the one pulling the trigger on that. But what a great quote, man. That's true. It is very true. I mean, the U.S. does have a serious enemy and it is itself. It is its own government. If you really think of what is actually ruining the U.S. economy, what is actually ruining the lives of Americans, it is the U.S. economy. It is the fiat money printer. That was the famous Boonesbury cartoon from the the soldier in Vietnam. We have met the enemy. He is us. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, for me, I I find it absolutely hilarious and tragic, the idea that people get into this kind of jingoism of, yeah, well, we're going to go kick ass in Iraq or Vietnam or Afghanistan or whatever it is. And it's as if, and, 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 and I mean, these are the sort of people who look down on people who follow sports as if, you know, sports is silly. You need to look at war. War is important. No, you idiot. Um, war is just sports for morally depraved subhumans who, who, <laughs> yeah. who, who can't enjoy peaceful competition and then need to see people die in order to do it. Because there is absolutely, not only is there no benefit for you as an American from being involved in these wars, it's actually far worse than that. It's all coming out of your tab. You're the one paying for it. The Iraq war, I mean, this is the best example because the cost of the Iraq war has exceeded $3 trillion and counting because the U.S. is still fighting in Iraq. They still have military bases in Iraq until today. And remember, Paul Wolfowitz went to Congress and said, this war is practically going to pay for itself. $3 trillion later, you realize that it did not pay for itself. And the average American fan of empire has no idea where that money came from. And he just thinks all of this inflation, all of these prices rising, all of these economic Mm -hmm. crises, all of these recessions that we suffered – just happened because reasons it's completely unrelated to the fact that the government is taking productive people instead of having them produce useful things for each other it's taking them out there to produce dead iraqis which you know you can't eat yep. dead iraqis you can't benefit from them you're not getting the oil you're not getting anything from them sure it may go back 20 years remember he sent you a rebate check everybody who paid Income taxes got an extra three or four hundred dollar rebate check from George W. Bush in 2003 and 2004 as though it was your dividend, as though it was your share of the profit from invading Iraq when that was all your money in the first place. And of course, was all printed out of nothing in order. It was just a gimmick. Yeah, and that was what gave the U.S. the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis. Nobody likes to draw the connection there, but all that inflation was what caused the crisis. Obviously, you have to be an Austrian to see the connection between the money printing and these crises and the rise in prices because 
<laughs> before. If, if you've been maleducated by Keynesian economics, you think it's all a conspiracy theory that no, 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 no. Money printing doesn't cause prices to rise. That's the correlation is not causation, as everybody knows. So really, hey, there's a reason that Robert Blumen, the Austrian school economist, was the first to call the housing bubble in 2005. Yeah, you could see the inflation, and you could see the connection with it. And if you were in Austrian, you couldn't see you can you couldn't see that. But can you see any kind of um, reason if you were trying to steel man the pro-war position, the pro-empire position? Could you see any kind of benefit for it for the American people or for the American economy? Even though I, I, I hate the term the American economy, there is no American economy. There are people. And the idea that you can just benefit the economy is almost always cover for, hey, I'm going to take money from you and give it to me. And we're going to call that good yeah. for the economy because I'm going to put it up in statistics. Well, but anyways, give us the steel man case for empire and war. I think the steel man would be, you know, for example, a NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. The argument would be the larger the area under the umbrella of one security force, the less likely the smaller parts of it are to fight amongst themselves. And there's clearly some truth to that, right? Like the in the United States of America, we don't consider even for a moment the states going to war against each other. The federal government is the boss of whatever conflict, you know, if, if Texas and Louisiana got a problem, we work it out in civil court, right? Or we send our secretaries of state to sit at a table. And because there's a, a severe monopoly on force in Washington, D.C. In fact, it's no coincidence that the biggest military base in America, Fort Hood or whatever they renamed it, is 100 miles up the road from Austin, Texas, right? That is not a subtle gun to Texas head that you don't have a choice here. You're staying in the union, pal. Don't even think about it. And we don't even think about it most of the time, <laughs> you know? So this was a big part of the argument for NATO expansion was as we spread our security umbrella to Europe, then we give Slovakia and Slovenia real reason to not squabble over their border because they're both part of NATO and they're going to have to work it out as gentlemen and rather than ever scrapping because they have too much at stake in, with their collective treaty security arrangements and whatever to ever fight. And so, and, and this is a big part of the self-justification of the, maybe I focused on Madeleine Albright's like too crass statement, but it's part and parcel of the idea that, you know, essentially America's holding the world down and we let go of it. It would like burst out into flame. It would go nuts. And so we're like holding the thing together. And, and the further we integrate more and more countries into our security umbrella, the less and less incentive that they have to fight. The problem with that, of course, is that it's completely untenable. And you end up creating a situation where now you've created this massive power for other powers to use and to take advantage of and, and all the problems that come with entangling alliances as described by George Washington in his farewell address. Every bit of that stands. And so now... For example, hey, all we're doing is benignly spreading our security umbrella throughout Europe. Yes, it's going to require a couple regime changes and coup d'etats and wars. Uh, we're going to have to start an aggressive war against Serbia to break off one of its provinces. And we're going to have to do some coup d'etats when the wrong guy gets elected and doesn't want to, you know, go along with the policy that we want him to go along with. And then 
geez, we really going to bring Russia into NATO? They're a big enough country. We would actually have to share power with them. We'd have to listen to them and compromise with them. Nah, we'll leave them out. But what does that mean? That means that you're continuing to add more and more countries to your security umbrella, which is an arrow pointed directly at Russia. That they are not, they are explicitly not invited to join. So what else is it but a threat to them, right? And so even if you've got the best intentions, like say you're just some Bill Clinton wonk in 1998 and you just think this is so smart that you're just going to spread all this stability. You're, you know, it's a Heisenberg uncertainty type thing, man. When you go spread your security umbrella, you're going to create whole new problems that you have to deal with. And then of course, and as I document in my book, that'll be out someday, uh, they say over and over again, well, you know what, if at the end of the day, what we do in expanding NATO threatens Russia so much that Russia reacts, well, at least we got NATO. So screw them. What are they going to do about it? And they say that over and over again. So I'm sorry. It's not a very good steel man, but that's my steel man. That's their most convincing argument. But I think it falls apart on, on, you know, pretty cursory inspection. And I think quite on the other hand, you could have America be a limited constitutional republic that doesn't butt in at all other than to host peace conferences and, and not ones where we're making any promises about arms and aid and, and support and intervention, but simply, you know, truly there's a, an old uh, William Jennings Bryan speech that he used to give, behold a republic, where he says, you know, this is what we should be doing is going around the world, helping resolve other people's problems where we don't have a dog in the fight where we don't have a conflict of interest. It's not a cynical excuse to steal your resources or anything like that. It's just like, hey, India, Pakistan, China, Kashmiris, we need to sit down and hammer this out. We can't have a nuclear war over Kashmir because you guys can't agree which security force is going to have a monopoly there. We got to hash this thing out before it's too late. And we could be doing that to solve the problem of Moldova or the Donbass or, you know, whatever you got if we don't have a dog in the fight. But then look what happens when we have a policy of dominance. Well, geez, as long as we don't dominate Ukraine, it's at risk and a threat. So we have to dominate it. Well, once that decision is made, what does that mean? It means they'll do anything to control Ukraine, including overthrow the government twice in 10 years. And including after the second coup, they sent the CIA director, John Brennan, over there to insist that they immediately go to war against the, they were Russian-backed separatists in the east of the country. And, and just, they called it the war against terrorism and carpet bomb the place. It's completely insane. And that's America keep holding the world together. See. Otherwise, everything would spiral out of control. And they're the ones who started the war. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's difficult to argue against it. Sure, to go with your steel man, there may be problems between Slovenia and Croatia if the US, if they weren't both under, essentially, governed by American puppet regimes, let's put it um, bluntly. But when you have America spreading, as you've said, when you have America spreading out to Eastern Europe, and it's not just to Eastern Europe, it's all over the world, well then, instead of having a small little fight between 
two small countries that get settled in a couple of weeks because they both don't have an endless money printer and an infinite uh, war machine and an infinite war industry that profits from this and then a constituency that wants to keep this going because there's a lot of money in it. Then that war gets settled in a couple of weeks. And instead of having that, we end up with the horror that we see in Ukraine and Russia today. And I think that people mistake this idea of non-interventionism with uh, utopian idealism, as if the world would just be all kumbaya, people holding each other's hand and singing happily, if only the US didn't intervene. And that's not true. There'd still be conflicts. But the point is, they're made worse. When you have somebody who can print the world's global reserve currency, able to just go out there and propagate any conflicts forever because they can and because there's a lot of money interests behind it. And this is what it comes down to and why I think you can rationalize it all you want. You can try and come up with arguments for why this makes sense. I think there is absolutely no argument for any kind of American intervention in any conflict abroad. I don't think there's any good argument for having a single American soldier outside of U.S. soil. Um, And I think there's absolutely no benefit that happens to accrue to the American people from this. But the problem is the reason that this continues to happen is because of the war machine, in particular the military-industrial complex. And that's what it really comes down to, in my opinion, because as I was saying earlier, it's about money printing. And when you have this enormous industry that can make enormous amounts of money by just printing, but by getting the population to believe that it is important for us to intervene in this place that you'd never heard about before, because if we don't, then the bad guys would win. And here's a couple of stories about how bad the bad guys are. I mean, look, they did bad things. Listen to CNN. Do you want the bad guys to win? Are you one of the bad guys? You don't want to be one of the bad guys, do you? So here we go. You know, Raytheon is going to make a trillion a year. It's so much money. You know, Nick Terse, the great um, reporter who mostly covers special operations forces in Africa these days, um, he also wrote Kill Anything That Moves about Vietnam, which is brilliant. Um, He wrote previously a book called The Complex, because there's just too many hyphens now. I think Ray McGovern calls it the Mickey Mat, which stands for, you know, the military, industrial, I forgot what the whole thing is, but something about the scientific, research, academia, media, everything complex, you know? And like, quite frankly, if you make tube socks, you know, out of Bangladesh or whatever, you need that Pentagon contract. And if you don't get it and your competition does, you're going to get smoked. And same thing for toothpaste and toothbrushes and shoelaces and, you know, all those cute little berets and all the different colors they come in. Like they're all a bunch of Frenchmen or special forces. Um, And that's the least of it, right? And then, of course, is all of the weapons and never mind the infantry. But how about the submarines, the ships, the aircraft carriers, fighter jets, and and especially the long-range bombers and all this, these big-ticket items. You know, submarine cost $10 billion. And there was a thing I remember reading about. They had done a deal to buy 20 submarines at $10 billion. And then they realized, nah, we really only need 10 submarines. So they still paid the same amount for half as many submarines. It was just $20 billion each per submarine instead of 10, because otherwise it would be so unfair to the contractor. 
And you think about, like, if you just were fantasizing about uh, some kind of minarchist state where you would have to have some sort of um, security force or something like that, you would want probably to have industry would have a deal where they don't get to make any profit off of war products, right? Because there's too much of a conflict of interest there. So right now they have this thing called cost plus. Whatever it costs the manufacturer to make whatever it is, you get that plus your guaranteed profit. Even if your cost overruns are a million percent more than what you signed up to pay in the first place. You get cost plus no matter what. Well, how about they get cost plus zero no matter what? And like, after all, if it's really necessary for us to have a war, I'm sure all those car manufacturers would be perfectly happy to churn out tanks and planes as long as we need them to save our country. They're great patriotic folk, and they're willing to break even to keep us safe, right? And so we have this huge for-profit arms industry, and anyone listening to this, no matter your proclivity, I mean, you just got to admit, it's almost perfect. You couldn't make it up. It's too good to be true. The phrase military-industrial complex was coined by Dwight David Eisenhower, who had been the supreme allied commander of United Nations forces in Europe in World War II, the five-star general behind D-Day, who was then the two-term Republican president of the United States of America. He was the baddest badass of all, the most authoritative source you could possibly cite to say to you, listen, it's dangerous that these companies are making so much money making these weapons. And you, the people of this country, sorry, I couldn't figure out how to tame them in eight years, but I'm checking out. You guys, good luck. You're going to have to figure this out. But they never did figure it out, right? And a lot of people think that the same guys turn around and murdered the next president, although I'm not so sure who was really behind that. But whatever it was, we never had a comeuppance. At the end of the Cold War, we didn't say, okay, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, we mean it. When we say peace dividend, we mean General Dynamics and Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and Martin Marietta and all of these guys, Boeing, you're going out of business. Boeing is going to reorganize as a civilian airliner company only, and the rest of you guys are going to make tube socks for the open civilian market. And that's it. You're done. And that didn't happen. And remember how stupid it was? I knew this even as a kid. It was so obvious. Even as a kid, they're like, and I remember saying this as a high school kid, you know, they can't build up the war on terrorism yet. They don't have enough terrorists yet. So they're using cocaine kingpins in South America as the stand-in avatar for the Soviet enemy until they can cook up this terror war. I mean, that was me talking in 1993, 1994. That's how obvious it was. Oh, no, Pablo Escobar, whatever, you know, 100 different versions of the cocaine kingpins of Latin America. We got to send the army. We got to make Harrison Ford movies about sending the army down there to stop the cocaine traffickers. Because the last thing in the world we could consider doing is just dismantling the empire, legalizing cocaine. It's all rich people who use it anyway. A bunch of Republicans and Wall Street traders who are using it anyway um, while they're locking up poor people for using it. And they could have, but, but that was the deal. And then the war on terrorism was the next project. It was the most obvious thing in the world that like, Hey, this is great. The more we kill Muslims, the more we enrage other different Muslims who will want to kill us. And then that'll be a great excuse to kill even more people after that. And that's oversimplifying it. And quite frankly, I'm not really a truther now, 
But I was a truther before it ever happened. I predicted September 11th for years. A lot of people did. It was so obvious. They even had the Gary Hart Rudman Commission, the Homeland Security Commission. Bin Laden's going to attack us. We need a Department of Homeland Security. That was in the, at the end of the 90s. The Council on Foreign Relations held that. It was in the wind. There was even, I don't know if you ever heard of this, the, the TV show The X-Files had a spinoff called The Lone Gunman. And in the pilot episode... The military industrial complex remote controls a plane into the World Trade Center, or they almost do, but it's averted at the very last second. But that's, they even say, well, geez, why would they do that? Because they need a war. You know, this is, you know, it was in the wind. Everybody knew this was next. And why? Because it's a, what can you say? Like a dirty snowball rolling downhill. It's conspiracy of a trillion dollars a year worth of interests to keep the thing going. I'll go further, I'm ranting. Andrew Coburn says, the neoconservative movement properly defined is the cross between the Israel lobby and the military industrial complex. And essentially to oversimplify, the WASPs, the Brooks Brothers crowd, wouldn't let the Catholics and Jews join the Council on Foreign Relations or not in large enough numbers. But you had a lot of Catholics and Jews who went to college and were intellectuals and were interested in foreign policy and stuff. And... A lot of them were Zionists. A lot of them were, you know, the prodigies of Podhoretz and Crystal and the neoconservative movement, the National Review and all of this stuff. And after the, the new left became pro-civil rights and pro-peace in the 1960s for Vietnam and the 67 war, the neoconservatives moved right. And they had been, you know, um, Fife and Pearl and Wolfowitz for three. And I think Eric Edelman or Elliot Abrams, a couple of those others had worked for Scoop Jackson, who was a Cold War Democrat they called him the senator from Boeing, who was from Washington state. What happened essentially was the, this is very oversimplified, forgive me, but essentially the bankers and the oil men already had the Council on Foreign Relations, but the arms industry kind of needed their own regime of think tanks to promote their interests. And so they made an alliance with the vanguard of the Israel lobby, the neoconservative movement. And so then immediately sprung up all of these think tanks, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the Center for Security Policy and the Committee on the Present Danger. And, and God, there's a hundred of them. I don't know anymore. The, the Project for a New American Century, of course. And they took over with this money, uh, the pre-existing Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute, the Olin and Bradley Foundations that financed the new right. And like, you, you know, I was always suspicious about this, but I never really understood. But you remember in the 1990s, it was always these weird, weak attacks against Bill Clinton. They never went after him for butchering the poor Branch Davidians or for covering up the Oklahoma City bombing or for backing Al-Qaeda terrorists in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya or anything like that. It was always Paula Jones and Whitewater and Monica Lewinsky and all of this stuff. That was all the Olin Foundation and the Bradley Foundation where they were like, you know, essentially swinging and missing, weakening him somewhat, but not that much and not willing to really go after him for his major abuses. Um, and in fact, in a way, kind of strengthening him and making it seem like the only tax against him were that he cheated on his wife when in fact he was such a horrible president and helped to create the terror war, the, the terrorists war against us and eventually then our war back against them. And so, and that was the neocons. And this is the, you know, Kenneth Starr and all that, he came out of that. And then these were the guys who took us to war in 2003 because Dick Cheney hired the whole lot of them to run the government, to be, you know, Colin Powell, the secretary of state, called them a separate government inside the government. 
and referred to, to Douglas Fife's, quote, Gestapo office, the Office of Special Plans under the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Policy, where they made up the lies to get us into war. And that was the neoconservative network that did that. So that's really where they come from, just like you're saying. It, and it was, and look, you can check, look on their websites. Look at the Center for Security Policy. Well, I haven't checked theirs in a while, but if you look at any of these major neoconservative think tank groups, look at their websites. Any, any think tank that exists as a piece of paper in Bill Crystal's desk drawer, just look. It's financed by Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics and all that. They admit it. They brag about it. And they see no qualms. And think of it from the point of view of Lockheed's board of directors. Hey, we're still spending one hundredth of one percent on funding those think tanks to write up excuses to, for the government to buy our wares, right? Yes, sir. Okay, good. And it's nothing but chump change to them. It's a re- it's fractions of pennies to them for the amount of billions of dollars that they're pulling in every year. Absolutely. I think if you're familiar with uh, academic economics, and I say this often, essentially what goes on at universities and most economics think tanks is just excuses for money printing. It's just, here's a bunch of money and come up with more stupid Keynesian ideas for why we need to print more money. And of course, a lot of people benefit from all of that money printing. And it costs peanuts to get a university professor at some whorehouse like Harvard or Yale or Princeton to come up with excuses for why, yeah, we need to print a bunch of money in order to make things better, whatever it is. And it's the same thing with all of this geopolitics, all of these think tanks, all of this foreign policy. People think there's actual scholarship there. People think those people are anything respectable. In fact, they're just prostitutes. There is no rhyme or reason behind any of this garbage that is manufactured as intellectual ideas. You know, all of these people that uh, you mentioned, all of these think tanks, I mean, there is no logic behind any of it. There's no, there's nothing that is intellectually defensible. It is all built, it's a giant edifice that's built on Keynesian bullshit. The idea that the more we spend, the better off we are. The more we spend on weapons, the better off we are. And if we spend money on wars, then it's not a bad thing because yeah, sure, you know, a lot of innocent people are going to die, but that's just what happens when you're the strongest country in the world. Don't you want to be the strongest country in the world? If we don't do it, others will do it to us. And so therefore, we need to keep printing money and we need to keep killing people. We need to keep doing this. And of course, as you said, it's chump change for the military industrial complex, but it is enormous amounts of money for the war of ideas. It's very easy, you know, with, with, with Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin's chump change, you can shape all of the discourse in all of America's whorehouse universities, all of America's whorehouse think tanks, all of America's whorehouse media. It's very easy. Journalists are very cheap kinds of prostitutes, as are university professors, as are all of these despicable pieces of shit in all of these think tanks that are coming up with all of these excuses for why we need to go and kill all of these foreigners. None of it makes any sense, and there's absolutely no logic to it, and it's all in my opinion, I keep coming back to this, it all rests on Keynesian foundations. It all rests on the idea that printing money is costless and military spending is good. This is the military Keynesianism is really a very, very, yeah, yeah, it's a very dangerous idea and it is something that is taught at universities and it is absolutely criminal because it just says- Well, you know what? It's funny. Just in the last month or so, or last, you know, what? 10 weeks, uh, Antony Blinken and the, the Biden government have outright come out and said that that's what they're doing. 
That's what this is all about. We're making money for your district. And um, they ran an article at politico.com, which is very close to the Biden government. I mean, it was not some scoop. It was a handed to them story. It was like a trial balloon. And then they liked it. I guess they kept using it. Blinken said this in a speech. They're like, hey, I'll give you some money. You want some money? You're making money. We're all making money off of the war because the government is spending on on uh, war machines that are made in districts throughout this country and just outright bringing up the military industrial complex spending as the primary reason for the war when that's supposed to be the conspiracy theory that only a cynic would think that our government would act in a way just to make money for their friends and especially man when anyone has any kind of economic literacy at all or even just like an intelligent person who thinks about it understands that money's got to come from somewhere, man. It comes from us in the first place. They got to take the value of what we create in order to repurpose that wealth into these weapons. And for the one, it shows the desperation of the Biden regime to come up with an excuse for what they do and the people that they murder. But it also goes to show what, you know, that they're so cynical that they project that onto us They think that that's a good enough excuse for us. Hey, I'll give you some money to kill somebody. What? What are they talking about? And it also goes to show that that they recognize that they don't have any other compelling excuses for this stuff that the people will accept. They have to outright resort to bribing us with our own money, trying to make us believe that this is in our interest to go and try to get a rebate and some of our money back in the form of living near Raytheon. I live near Raytheon. At least last I checked, there was a, a, a subsidiary of Raytheon somewhere near my house. Oh, I guess good for me every time there's a war then, huh? What are they talking about? It's completely bananas. I benefit zero from that. If And, and look, even the trillion dollars a year that they waste on military spending. Let's say that they were making Mexico pay for it all. Let's still chump change. One trillion a year. I mean, it's, I guess it's still subsidizing our economy to a degree. I'm saying if that money did come from somewhere else, but you would not be able to convincingly argue that our economy depends on that money and that we wouldn't be able to what use our capital stock to invest in productive things instead. That this is truly the best way to create an efficient American economy is to put all of our capital investment into making weapons to destroy things and kill people with? Why should anyone accept that that's true? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're talking about some whorehouse economist from Harvard or whatever might think so. But to anybody with a pencil and a piece of paper, it's a net loss on the face of it. The only way you can argue that, look, no, look, if the British and the French and the Indians are coming then we better invest in a strong Navy to keep them at bay or we have we stand to lose a lot more than that. But again, as we established, that's a bunch of crap. Nobody's coming for us. This is all a giant waste. As Ron Paul said to the Washington Post back in 2008, come on, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. That's true. Which is exactly the truth. People don't know this. The United States could destroy all of Russia with one nuclear sub. And we did the math with the different missiles and the different numbers of warheads that you can fit. I don't remember the exact number of warheads, but it's a couple of hundred warheads can fly out of one submarine, could kill every city in Europe and Russia. 
and end the world, create a nuclear winter that has starved billions, set mankind back a thousand years. One sub of the nukes could do that. I'm a little skeptical of this. I've become a little bit of a nuclear um, power, oh, yeah? n- nuclear bomb denier, if you want. On nuclear winter or on which aspect? On the idea that there's somebody in Washington who can click a button and destroy Europe or destroy the world or bring the end of the world. I think. Look at the number of kilotons per H bomb. I mean, and, and look at the different kinds. Of- and where do you get these numbers from? Well. I don't think much of that is in doubt. I mean, I know a guy who used to test H-bombs, who used to be the chief scientist of the Army. And who did he work for? He worked for Sandia National Laboratory. Then he wrote for Antiwar.com for many years and debunked 10,000 lies. Um, and Yeah, but I mean, I think, look, the only thing that we see is the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they were... So you don't, you don't think that they make hydrogen bombs that go off in the tens of kilotons? I highly doubt it. In high tens? I think this is, I, I mean, look. I mean, there, just, there, look at YouTube, just look at the tests in the Pacific. If you look at the tests in Nevada, those are all lower yield atom bombs. But look yeah, at but the tests is, in the Pacific. Those are all hydrogen bombs. They're thermonuclear bombs that go off in the high tens of kilotons, some of them in the megaton range. Nobody was there to verify except government officials. If you believe all government right, Well, people. we're going to have to differ on that one, pal. And there is no way that you can just conjure up a fake hydrogen bomb arsenal in the hands of Russia and China and Britain and France and Israel and India. And I don't think Pakistan has H-bombs, but India uh, does. I don't know actually that Israel has H-bombs. They do have A-bombs. But France and Britain and the United States, Russia and China absolutely have thermonuclear weapons and have proven it over and over again. And I don't think there's any question about that. I think there's a very strong incentive to overstate the capacity of these weapons to do damage because I think it helps enormously in brainwashing people into believing that government is omnipotent. I think the important thing to understand in the 20th century is that government is people's God. And in the holy book, God is the one who brings about the apocalypse when he gets too angry at you or when it's one time. Well, he's also the one who creates life. Government can't create life. But if you don't think that they got H-bombs big enough to kill Dallas with, I mean, I'd like to get some weed from your guy. (laughs) <laughs> They've got enough firebombs to kill Dallas. They've got enough napalm to kill Dallas. Dallas isn't that big of an uh, of a challenge. But do they have pro- bombs to kill Russia, Europe? I think there's a strong incentive for governments to be lying about this in order to just um, get people to be scared and, ta- and cow people. There's a strong incentive for them to make bombs that big too. There's a strong incentive for them to say, "A bombs aren't enough. The Russians got them now. We need the super." We need fusion because fission ain't cutting it. And then they just keep going and going. They need funding for those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean they can actually produce them. I guess that's the... uh, Uh, I know a guy who used to test them. Okay. I obviously don't have anything more than just... And you can look at the footage. I I wish I knew the address off the top of my head, but there's a, a really great website. You could say, okay, it's government, but it's digitization of high speed film that they got um, still pictures and film from hydrogen bomb tests in the Pacific, as well as atom bomb tests in Nevada um, that you could find online. That You can't fake all that. I mean, you remember where special effects was when George Lucas did the special edition in 1999, where they put that stupid little beak coming out of the Sarlacc pit and all that it looked like a stupid cartoon. You can't fake H-bomb footage in 1950-something, 60-something, 70-something. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not very uh, convinced either way, uh, but I, I... I'll tell you I, what's worrisome, man, is 
they came up with this new proximity fuse where it used to be that they had these the lower yield nuclear weapons were for like just surface bases, like an army base or an aircraft uh, air base. But they would use heavier yield nukes to take out enemy nukes, especially in underground silos, because they'll have like these hard reinforced steel cone caps over them to protect them and stuff like that. And you really have to get your hydrogen, even a hydrogen bomb. Because I think you might be right. I'll, I'll give you credit on they overstate the destructive power. I think they overstate the effectiveness of the destructive power in the sense that like when they bomb Nagasaki, there are American POWs who survived the thing just by dump, jumping in a ditch. And there was, you know, military infrastructure that survived the attack. 75,000 civilians were killed, but as an effective military weapon, it's just a bigger bomb is not necessarily always the answer, you know, as far as that goes. But, um, ah, hell, did I lose my train of thought here? Let's see if I can find it. Ah, shit. I'm sorry, man. I forgot where I was going with that when I went off on that tangent. Well, I mean, it's just, here, here's what, I, what I'll say. Like, there was a lot more destruction in many other cities of Japan with conventional weapons. So how do you extrapolate from what we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to saying, well, somebody there can click a button and destroy the world. I know a nuclear physicist who says if you combined all of the world's nuclear arsenal, all of the world's army's nuclear arsenal, and you blew up, uh, blew it up in one place, you could destroy Greece. And there's easier ways of destroying Greece. Okay, blew it up in one place, but see, that's not the thing. And the end of the world thing is not about like an H bomb cracking the world in half. The end of the world thing is about creating so many cities on fire and forest fires, uncontrolled fires burning out of control that you put so much soot into the air above the, you know, into the stratosphere, above the clouds where the clouds can't rain this stuff out. It has to take, you know, decades, even a decade or more to filter back down to earth. And in the meantime, it's not like you got a picture of blizzard in July the point is, you just lose a few degrees and you have kind of autumn in July. That's enough to starve billions to death. And the thing about destroying all of Europe or all of Russia, it's not destroying the entire land area. When people say that, they're talking about destroying all the cities. You can kill a city with one of these bombs each. And in most cases, they would use more than one. But if somebody bombed the 100 most important cities in the United States or God forbid, the thousand most important cities in the United States, that would, that's the same thing as the end of the world. Even if people out in West Texas survived it or people up in the mountains or out in the woods or whatever, you know, were outside of the blast radius and out and stayed inside till the fallout was done, which is only not, you know, whatever, a few weeks or a couple of months or whatever and come outside. But still, you're talking about a hundred and something million deaths and you're talking about massive crop failures. And people dying. And when I when I talk about, you know, the power of click one button and do it, that's just one sub. We got a bunch of subs and we got bombers and we got land-based missiles. But just one sub, and we did the calculation on this and, and it's in the book, uh, Hotter Than the Sun, we talk about this. There are enough missiles on one Trident, American Trident submarine with enough multiple warheads to take out 200 cities and then to set them on fire. And, and then that is the cause of the nuclear winter there. And it's, and I'm not the guy with the calculator, but it's been estimated that even a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan alone, even if America and China stayed out, that it 
that alone could be enough to cause nuclear winter, massive crop failure, and billions of deaths. And then God knows what wars over what resources are left as people are fighting over food and water and all of that. So it would be, you know, a general nuclear war between the major powers would be an absolute catastrophe. You know, Daniel Ellsberg, when he worked at the consultant for RAND uh, tied to the Pentagon, he published their chart even has said that the Pentagon estimated 60 million deaths within the first week of a nuclear war. And this was in the early 1960s and populations were much lower. And that's as many people were killed in the Second World War in the first week of the Third World War was the estimate. And there was an argument from the Cuban Missile Crisis XCOM committee where the Air Force is telling, I believe it's the Air Force, Kennedy says to them, yeah, if, if just one Russian missile gets through, how many people die? And they said, well, Mr. President, we think 600,000. And Kennedy said, well, that's how many people died in the Civil War. And we haven't gotten over that in 100 years. Yeah, sounds like you should give them a lot more money. Well, <laughs> I mean, look, they, they, there's certainly a nuclear missile and nuclear arms industrial complex. That doesn't mean that the bombs are pretend. It does mean that I mean, what the hell? You might, you might argue, we don't test them very often. Maybe the missiles suck and maybe they won't work. If there is a war, maybe they'll blow up on the launch pad or in their silos or whatever. I don't know how often they test them. But, you know, just like the F-35 is a turkey, but it doesn't mean the F-35 is imaginary. It just means that it's a grift. And so, yes, there is a thermonuclear grift, but that doesn't make the bombs harmless or... Or, you know, give us any reason to think that they stopped improving them after Nagasaki. As Daniel Ellsberg says, the Nagasaki bomb, that plutonium implosion bomb, that's the blasting cap for setting off a hydrogen bomb. You, you do, you know, fission of plutonium to make it hot enough to then fuse the hydrogen isotopes together to set off the super. And it is, as the book title says, it's hotter than the sun, hotter even than the center of the sun. And when they first started setting them off, it was fairy or furry, uh, I believe, I forgot the guy's, how to say his name, but the Italian, oh, Fermi, it was Fermi, who he gave it a 10% chance that they were going to set the entire world's atmosphere on fire, that they were going to cause a chain reaction that was going to consume all the nitrogen in the atmosphere, which is 80% of the atmosphere, and kill every last bit of life on earth, boil the oceans off into space and kill everything. And then the other said, oh, come on, it's not a 10% chance. It's probably less than 1%. And then they did it anyway. They tested it anyway. And, but th they didn't know. They thought that might happen. And they, they still thought it was a danger when they tested the fusion bombs. And they went ahead and did that too. And luckily, it didn't burn off the entire atmosphere and kill everyone. And in fact, this is in Ellsberg's book that this is one of the reasons that Hitler turned down the nuclear bomb project. They thought they were in a race with the Germans. The Germans had basically shut theirs down because his scientists had come to Hitler and said, man, the only problem is we might ignite the entire atmosphere and kill all life on Earth. And Adolf freaking Hitler was like, forget it then. <laughs> but the Americans were like, hey, that sounds good. Go ahead. 10% chance. I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> and they went ahead with the damn thing. Should read Ellsberg's book, uh, The Doomsday Machine. It's fantastic and terrifying. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I honestly don't know enough. I just have seen so much bullshit in my life that anytime anything comes from government, I just have such a strong, um, naturally skeptical reaction. Okay, but I mean, if they say the sky's blue and water's wet, then... But they don't. That's the thing. They're not out there telling you the sky is blue and water's wet because they're (laughs) busy lying about other things. The other thing is like all of this hysteria around radiation, I think is massively overstated. So two people died in Chernobyl, 50 people. Depends on how you count it. It's two to 50 people that died. You know, my nuclear bomb testing friend agrees with you on that. He says that all of the hype about the radiation, essentially, if there was a nuclear war, you better stay inside for about two weeks and then you'll be fine. And the, all the gamma rays will be gone by then and you'll probably be okay. Maybe a little longer for alpha, this or that. I don't know the exact details. But to him, it's, and the fallout is important. See, you know, what they call a clean nuke is one that they detonate far above your city, right? But the thing is, they found out that when they detonate nukes at ground level, it really does contaminate the dirt and the ash and infuse it with all this radioactivity that then falls on people and gets inside their bodies and that kind of thing, you know? But I mean, there was so much fear about what's going to happen from Chernobyl, from Fukushima, from Three Mile Island. And my favorite way of putting these in perspective is that more people have died installing solar panels than have died from nuclear power (laughs) reactors, even though nuclear power produces infinitely more power for human consumption. So I think that's probably right. Yeah, so this idea that radiation is just this enormously dangerous thing seems massively, massively exaggerated in my mind. But well, and it depends, it depends what kind of radiation and at what strength. I think it's truly the gamma rays course, are yeah. the ones that are mo- the most dangerous. I don't know exactly the, the situation of, of what kind of contamination came out at Chernobyl eventually or not, uh, at Three Mile Island and the rest. But I, I agree with you that I think, you know, fear of, nuclear electric power, which is just nuclear-driven steam power is all it is. But I think uh, a lot of that is overstated. Maybe there's a problem with earthquakes and things like that, but all that can be, you know, engineers are pretty crazy, man. They can come up with ways uh, to keep things safe. I mean, I happen to know, in fact, from my friend, again, who told me about Chernobyl, that at Chernobyl, it was the government inspectors came in that day and they started fiddling around with everything. And the people who ran the place were like, ah, oh, geez. And, and one of them, they, they had set, sh- shut off some valve or something and an alarm started going off. And the commissar said, shut off that alarm. <laughs> and so they shut off the alarm. And there, you know, it was basically it was a government program. It wasn't just a nuclear facility. It was a government program and it was run like one. And they were, you know, it, essentially to please the inspectors, they were... They had their incentives screwed up and behaved wrong, and the thing was allowed to get out of control and melt down. But otherwise, if it had been an average Thursday, it would have never happened. It was because the inspectors came, started bossing everybody around when they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, this is a pretty common theme in all of these things, in Chernobyl and in Fukushima. There's a bit of revisionist history about all of these things, that it was really the hysteria and the reaction that ended up killing far more people than the radiation itself, because nobody died from the radiation in Three Mile Island. And it depends on how you count it. It could be two to 50 people that died in Chernobyl. And then in Fukushima, nobody died from radiation. People died because of... Um, I mean, there are studies too that show 
increased cancer rates across the American population from all the nuclear tests in Nevada, especially, and then I guess presumably for the for the islanders as well. And you're looking at, you know, excess death rates in maybe the hundreds of thousands or millions of people getting cancers that they otherwise would not have gotten. I mean, the average American is eating garbage all day, every day. So I think that's the not the same as living in the nuclear fallout zone, you know, for people I mean, in Nevada and, and nearby states. Could be, could be. I mean, look into it, man. Interview the guy about it. I should. There's, there's all kinds of stuff out there about this stuff. And a lot of it might be like you find some hippie from Greenpeace who's determined to believe what he believes or whatever, but you can find real ass experts. You know, there's some great guys at the Federation for American Scientists and others who are really good on this stuff. Yeah, I should look more into it. I must say, I mean, this is just uh, my skepticism. I don't have a strong conviction about this. Um, It's just some skeptical ideas that I have. But getting back to foreign policy, so can you give us a little bit of a uh, background on U.S. involvement in uh, Afghanistan? You've written extensively about that. How did that start and how's it unfolded and why has it been such a catastrophe? Well, I mean, I know that they had, you know, been involved over there in the 50s and things like that a little bit. But essentially, our story begins in 1979. What had happened was in there, were, you know, the, the commie dictator was very unstable and there was a civil war kind of breaking out, led mostly by the Pashtun Mujahideen. And the Americans decided in July that they would start to back this Mujahideen uprising in order to attempt to provoke the Russians into invading and will give them their own Vietnam. That was the thinking of Walter Slocum and Zbigniew Brzezinski at the time, was Vietnam was just this terrible self-inflicted wound that destabilized the country and broke the economy and was just horrible for, never mind the poor Vietnamese and Cambodians and Laotians, but for the Americans. And part of the legacy of Vietnam, in fact, included what was called the Vietnam Syndrome, which meant that the American people didn't want to send their sons to any more Koreas and Vietnams and these kinds of things in the name of containing communism. So Slocum and Brzezinski essentially were getting clever and saying, look, man, you know what? Instead of containing communism, let's bait them into overexpansion and give them too many responsibilities to handle. Now, they didn't want them to expand into West Germany, but how about Afghanistan? Those people are expendable. Who cares about them? Now, I got to tell you, I don't believe that it was the American support for the Mujahideen that actually caused the Russians to invade, the Soviets, that is, to invade in 1979. Um, And that's primarily because Eric Margulies, who knows a hell of a lot about it and reported from there at the time, as well as Andrei Sakharov, the Russian dissident, Soviet dissident, they both said that essentially the war happened because the local sock puppet dictator was too crazy and was causing, you know, it was torturing people out of control and driving all of the sentiment against him. And the first thing they did when they invaded was take him out back and shoot him and replace him with a new puppet. So that was really their impetus for invading at that time. But for me, I think it doesn't matter. The point is, for our purposes, the Americans thought this is a clever way to get those Russians is we'll bog them down and bleed them to bankruptcy by supporting essentially this Pashtun Viet Cong against them. And that was what they did. It was called Operation Cyclone and it lasted throughout the 1980s. And part of this, a huge part of it, was that uh, Saudi Arabia agreed to match America dollar for dollar, which is, I think it was 10 billion each uh, that they spent 
and along with working with the Pakistanis, and they brought Muslims from all over the world. And they're called the Arab Afghan Army or the International Muslim Brigades, but it included Americans and Filipinos and Chechens and whatever, but mostly Arabs who traveled to Afghanistan as like a rite of passage. You turn 18, you go off and fight in Afghanistan for a little while, this kind of thing. But some of them were very committed. And a lot of guys from Egyptian Islamic Jihad, or I don't know if it was called that yet, proto-Egyptian Islamic Jihad, had gone there to fight. And a bunch of Saudis, including Osama bin Laden. And he was wounded three times in battle, including fighting in the Battle of Jalalabad. He was shot. And this was a guy who he built up his credibility among the people there, even back then during the war and, and ongoing and later too. He was always like this. He sle- he, everybody knew he was a millionaire. Everybody knew he was a, not exactly a princeling, but the, the son of basically the CEO of their Halliburton over there, the Bin Laden group in, you know, speaking of connected firms to the government there. And everybody knew he was a rich boy, but he was wounded in battle and slept on the floor of the cave with his men. And this kind of thing. And so he won a lot of respect from people that way. And then when the war was over, almost immediately, in a blink of an eye, H.W. Bush launched a Rock War One, And Bin Laden was so pissed off about this because he had offered his services to drive the Iraqis out of Kuwait, which I don't know, because they didn't really have mountains to hide in in Kuwait. I don't know what they thought they were going to do, but the uh, king turned him down. King Abdullah turned him down, or was it King Fahd by then, uh, turned him down and invited the white Christian American forces to occupy the Holy Arabian Peninsula in order to fight Saddam Hussein. And Dick Cheney brags about this. In fact, in an interview with Bill Crystal, you can watch, he brags about how he promised, not even the Secretary of State, but the Secretary of Defense promised the Saudi king, soon as the war is over, we'll leave. We're not going to stay and, and drive your crazies crazy, we promise. And then they broke that promise. And part of that, let me just say real quick, is at the end of Iraq War One, Bush Sr. encouraged the Shiite supermajority of the country, 60%, and the 20% Kurdish minority in the North, to all rise up and combine to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Bush Sr. put out a message over the Voice of America, and they dropped leaflets all over uh, Iraqi army divisions in the South, and they took him up on it, and they started marching on Baghdad. And then what happened was they choked, the Americans choked and changed their mind. And the reason why is because they realized that after, because these were the same guys for people who are young here, listen, the Bush senior government, these were all the leftovers from the Reagan government. He had been Reagan's vice president and Colin Powell and James Baker had also been in the government. Dick Cheney had been in Congress at that time in the Reagan years, but essentially the Bush senior government was the Reagan government continued. And they realized, oh no, what are we doing? We just spent eight years backing Saddam Hussein to contain Iran at the same time they're back in the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. We spent eight years backing Saddam Hussein to contain the Iranian revolution. Now we're importing it into Iraq. And so they choked and called it off and let Saddam Hussein keep enough tanks and helicopters to massacre the people and put down the uprising and 100,000 people were killed. And then that became the excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia. Even though the insurrection was over, Saddam Saddam was going to keep murdering every last man, woman, and child in southern Iraqi Shiistan. But that became the excuse to stay, is to protect the Iraqi Shiites. And so America and Britain and France, originally, although France dropped out, but America and Britain stayed in Saudi to bomb and blockade Iraq under the so-called no-fly zones for the entire rest of H.W. Bush and then the entire Clinton presidency, in other words, through the end of the century. And it was that policy, first and foremost, that 
essentially, you know, convinced bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri, who had been the leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, to merge together and to essentially forge a consensus among all these international jihadists to fight America first instead of defend America first, it's fight America first. Because as, as Zawahri argued and others, that there's no point in trying to wage a revolution in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia or in Jordan, because the Americans will always come and support the dictator against us. Or even if we won, bomb us right back off the face of the earth again. And in fact, look what happened. There was a revolution in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood won free and fair elections. And then America and Saudi sponsored a military coup d'etat to overthrow that elected Muslim Brotherhood government and replace them with the dictatorship again, uh, just one and a half years later, right? Just proving Zawahiri's argument uh, exactly correct. As long as America's there, they can never have their way. So attack America first. And then what was the policy? What was the plan? It was to get America to give ourselves our own Vietnam again to replicate the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, which was just the Americans trying to replicate the American experience in Vietnam. And so bin Laden was in the role of Ronald Reagan, right? Getting America to come and, you know, uh, uh, incentivizing him to come and invade and get bogged down and bleed us to bankruptcy in Afghanistan. And Bush, I don't want to say fell for it because that makes him sound innocent. Bush Jr., W. Bush, took advantage of the situation after September 11th to invade Afghanistan and stay there. Why? He knew and his government knew. The CIA and even Condoleezza Rice argued, and we know this, it's in the National Security Council minutes of their meetings and everything. They argued, there were some in the government who argued, we should kill only Arabs. We should make it very clear that we are not trying to kill anyone involved in the Taliban government here. That's a separate issue. And as long as they stay away from the Arabs, we should only kill them in order to demonstrate to the Taliban just to stay the hell out of our way. You don't want beef with us. But Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney won the argument on the National Security Council. And the argument was, no, 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 because if we just kill bin Laden and his friends, the war will be over too soon. We don't want the American people to think that the war is over and that we won. Oh, bin Laden's head on a plate. Great. Home, troops home by Christmas. Everything's fine now. Uh-uh. The American people have to understand the war on terrorism is going to spread throughout time and place. And Rumsfeld even suggested, maybe we should start bombing Baghdad right now just so the American people understand that this war ain't anywhere near over yet. And I make the case in both books, Although I guess I now have one reason to doubt myself, but I make a pretty damn compelling case, I think, in both books that they deliberately decided to allow bin Laden to escape. That when the Delta Force and the CIA Special Activities uh, Division paramilitaries have bin Laden and his men cornered at Tora Bora, a land within one square mile of territory, and Bush absolutely, first he called off all their air support and then refuse, absolutely refuse their entreaties over and over and over again from CIA and from Delta for Rangers or Green Berets, all of whom were available. 75th Ranger Division was available down in Kandahar. There are 20,000 Rangers from whichever division, I don't know. I mean, 75th Rangers are top tier special forces along with Delta. Um, but you had second tier uh, Rangers and Green Berets, Rangers stationed at Bagram Air Base, and Green Berets wasting their time fighting the Taliban up in Mazari Sharif in Kunduz. 
when they should have all been sealing the border to Pakistan and preventing Osama bin Laden from escaping. They knew they had his ass. They had him right there. It wasn't a mystery. They knew they had him. They had him surrounded on three sides with a border to his back. And they begged and begged and begged and begged for reinforcements. The CIA and the Delta Force did and were denied over and over and over again. And then get this. I read this on the occasion of the end of the war. This article came out in Task and Purpose. And it was about the Air Force controller who was Special Operations Forces embedded with Delta. And what happened was at this time of the war, this is in from Bin Laden got out of there on December the 17th. So this is essentially the first two two weeks of December of 2001. Or in fact, I guess they got to Tora Bora the last week of November. So for the last week in November and the first week of December, they're bombing the hell out of Tora Bora. And this one Air Force controller, he's telling his story. He says there was a friendly fire incident somewhere else in the country. And because of that, all air raids in the country were canceled except Tora Bora. And what that meant was every freaking American and British plane in the region was available for them to use. All of them. And this one guy had the job. He was running all air, tra- air traffic control and running all the bombing camp, all the bombing missions, lazing the targets for him and everything. This one guy. And he's talking about the exploits. Oh man, and we bombed him with this, and we bombed him with that, and we dropped the daisy cutter, although it might have been a dud, and blah, 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 blah. And then he says, yep, and then they called me out of there on December the 8th. Wait, what? On December the what? On December the 18th after Bin Laden escaped? No, they called him out of there on the 8th. Nine days before Bin Laden escaped. And then as you all know the story, you've heard this a thousand times. You might not even question it. They say it over and over again. Well, he slipped into Pakistan. And then you're supposed to believe what? That the Pakistani border is this magical semi-permeable membrane that terrorists on foot can cross, but the American Delta Force cannot, even though, come on, give me a break. Everybody knows the history of this. Dick Armitage told Musharraf, the dictator of Pakistan, listen, man, you're going to do everything I say or we're going to bomb your country into the Stone Age. And that was because Pakistan had backed the Taliban, of course, with Bill Clinton's support in the 1990s. But anyway, you're going to do everything we say or we're going to kill you. And Musharraf said, absolutely, sir, yes, sir. Whatever you guys say, we are at your service. And we know because it's in Robert Grenier's book, the CIA station chief in Islamabad wrote a book called 88 Days to Kandahar, where he had no pushback from the Pakistanis whatsoever. Your wish is my command, they said. And he already had coordinated with the Pakistani army and their frontier corps to prepare for the Delta Force to come across the border. And they had set up a deconfliction system to prevent the Pakistanis from accidentally firing on the Americans, since we're going to have the Al-Qaeda guys surrounded. But the Americans were not allowed to chase them. Again, Pakistan is a friend of ours, an ally of ours. Their military forces are subordinate to ours. Our Delta guys are chomping at the bit, begging for permission to follow bin Laden. And they're denied. And they got three or four plans. And anybody can watch this on YouTube. Just type in Dalton Fury. Dalton Fury, 60 minutes. And you can watch the episode where the the Delta Force commander in charge explains how they wouldn't let him win. 
And his real name was Thomas Greer. He died of, I guess, cancer. Uh, his real name is Thomas Greer. And the book is called Kill Bin Laden. And he's sitting there with a, a fake chin and mustache and hat and everything on 60 Minutes. And he explains how they had a plan because they're the Delta Force from the first world, man. They're not on foot. They, they want to get in their Chinooks, fly over the mountains into Pakistan, and then on foot come across the mountains from the east and corner Bin Laden that way. Nope. Permission denied. Okay, well, we want to fly our helicopters over and we want to mine. There's only three valleys out of there that they could possibly take out of there. And we want to drop mines in them all. At the very least, that'll slow them down. And once they start blowing up, we'll be able to find them then. Nope. Denied, 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 denied. And so, and in fact, the the boss of the CIA effort back at the base was a guy named Henry Crumpton. And according to Ron Susskind in his book, The 1% Doctrine, he went and laid a giant map of Tora Bora on George Bush's desk and showed him and Vice President Cheney, here's where our guys are, here's where we need reinforcements, denied by the president himself. Now, I will say as a caveat, because I promised I would, because I do think I make a pretty damn good case, but I do have a friend who's a former Special Forces guy who was in Afghanistan, I don't think then, but later, and he says, you know, what really happened was Big Army finally got there. And that's it. Big Army is a government program. And once they got there, they didn't want special operations forces and CIA doing what they considered to be their work. And they essentially just call everything off. You know, once we're done getting set up in four months, then the war can start again or whatever, because they're the big army. And they don't, these light and fast special operations forces are, you know, a detriment to their usual plotting way of doing things. And so that was the reason. In Greer's book, he paints this Colonel Mulholland of the Green Berets as almost a traitor, that he's like begging Mulholland for Green Berets. He's got these Green Berets who are attached to the Alabama National Guard. He describes these big old good old boys with their big red beards who just want to go hunting Al-Qaeda guys. Just just point and let them go, man. And in fact, they were, as Green Berets and National Guard Green Berets, their only job was going to be sealing the border. They weren't going to get to go hunting. But are these tough enough guys for the job? Yeah, man. This is, these guys are here for blood. And they're held back at every turn. And Look, I would have rather arrested the guys. And and I, quite frankly, as I say in the book too, they could have negotiated. The Taliban were willing to betray Al-Qaeda and turn them over to us. It's just the Americans didn't want to negotiate with the Taliban at all. It was give in or else, period, ultimatum, rather than, and so rather than negotiating, they went ahead and, and started the war. So I'm not even saying like, oh, I wanted the guys exterminated or whatever, but I'm just saying on their own terms, Boy, did they botch this thing. You know what I mean? They absolutely did. And and then and and look at it, it makes perfect sense. Because they wanted to spread the war to Iraq. And what good does it do them if they have this whole case that Saddam Hussein is friends with Osama bin Laden, if bin Laden's already dead? We already solved that problem, George. Now why are we supposed to be afraid of Saddam Hussein? Because he's friends with Abu Nidal? Give me a break, dude. I don't care about that. What did he do? Kill an Israeli ambassador to Britain or something 25 years ago? That doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't care about that. Can't start a war with Iraq over that. It's got to be Saddam is going to give chemicals to Osama to use on you. 
And Bush said this explicitly. Imagine September 11th. Only this time, they're armed with Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. That was the lie. That's how they got us into the war. Um, and so they extended the Afghan war from Al-Qaeda to regime change against the Taliban and full support for the Northern Alliance and the new regime just essentially to keep the war going because it was going to take a year and a half to build up their forces in Kuwait to prepare for the invasion of Iraq. And they hoped Turkey as well, but that didn't work out. But they had to build up their forces and they had to build up a year and a half worth of BS to make Americans believe that Saddam with the mustache was the same thing as Osama with the beard. And you're supposed to be just as afraid of both. And and this is how we do it. We've got to conflate these things together. And Bush would say, and this was so deliberate, because see, part of what was, it was lucky for him that he was so stupid because people kind of fill in the gap for him. They would edit. I would do it myself. He would say something and I would edit it in my head. I know what he was trying to say there. The guy's just so damn dumb, he can't string a sentence together a lot of the time. And so what would happen is people would infer all kinds of things about what he meant. And he knew that. And they would do it on purpose. He would say, why do we have to attack Iraq? Because of September 11th. Two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi. And you're sitting there thinking he just said because Iraq did 9-11, right? Isn't that what it sounded like he just said? Why do we have to attack Iraq? Because of September 11th. And then six seconds later, he goes, because we learned that day that from now on, you got to start all the wars instead of waiting around for your enemy to attack you first. And so we're going to preemptively blah, blah, blah. But it sure sounded like he said Iraq attacked us there. And he did that over and over again. And his government and, of course, the neoconservatives pushed that line over and over again. And then as far as like beyond the scam of just making the war on terror seem like it had to be this big so they could go to Iraq. Other than that, it was, as you say, the military industrial complex firms on welfare throughout the entire Afghan war. And there was an idea, although I think this is mostly an excuse, although there's some people, I think, in defense circles who believed in this, that this gives us some kind of strategic advantage over Russia and China. When in fact, it's just a tripwire for war. It's not like we're going to keep nuclear bombers at Bagram Air Base in order to deter Russia and China from this, that, or the other thing. And it's like they're married to this ridiculous Mackinder doctrine from, you know, the British Navy from a hundred years ago that he who controls Central Asia controls the world island. And so you got to have a foothold in Afghanistan of all places, which could be more remote from anywhere. And as we saw for 20 years, did not give America dominance even over Pakistan, much less over Iran and Russia and China. It's the whole thing was completely freaking stupid as hell. And the, our friends, the Pakistanis were backing the Taliban against us, at least from 05 on, almost the whole war long. Um, you know, being in Afghanistan didn't even give us dominance over, over our friends, the Pakistanis, much less our enemies, the Iranians, uh, the Russians and the Chinese. And as we can see, and there were people who said, oh, the safe haven, the safe haven myth. If we ever leave there, then Al Qaeda will use it as a base to attack us again. As though there's a magic portal from Tora Bora to Boston Logan Airport. When, no, the magic portal is Israeli and American foreign policy driving terrorists crazy, and then they get a student visa and get into the country legally and hijack a plane, kamikaze, our own damn planes, right? Meanwhile, Afghanistan, look at the map. It's as far as you could ever get from anywhere without being on the way back again. It's exile. It's nowhere land. A Torabor, the Nangahar province on the Afghan-Pakistan border, 
You're talking 400 loser, scumbag, nobody bandits who successfully baited the American world empire into replicating its own, the, the flawed end of its own stupid strategy against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s. It took twice as long to drive us out as it did to drive out the Soviets. And yet here we are with the Taliban right back in power again. And by the way, no Al-Qaeda anywhere to be seen. Yeah, that's a very interesting observation, actually, that fact. I mean, everybody's come to terms with the fact that the Taliban are back, that it took 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. But people paper over the fact that there's no Al-Qaeda. Nobody's going and saying, well, now the Al-Qaeda masterminds, the new Osama bin Laden's come out of the caves. Well, there's ISIS there and the Taliban kill them, right? And and by the way, who are Afghan ISIS? You know who they are? They're refugees from the Pakistani Taliban who when Obama, in order to wage his drone war against the last 29 Al-Qaeda guys in Pakistan in 2009 through, what, 12 there or so, in order to get permission to wage that drone war, he had to make a deal with the government of Pakistan to help them wage their war against the Tariqi Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban up in the northwestern frontier province in the Swat Valley. And so in making that compromise with them, they started this massive war that killed like 80,000 people and drove, I, I forget, I think it was something like 80,000 people were killed or maybe that was the total casualties. And then there were tons of, of refugees who then fled to Afghanistan. So you have Afghan Taliban seeking safe haven in Pakistan and being supported by the Pakistani government to wage attacks back across the border in their own country. Then you have Pakistani Taliban come and seek safe haven in Afghanistan. And then what happened? Come on, anybody watching or listening to this show right now could write the rest of this. The CIA, you knew I was going to say that. The CIA and the NDS, which was the National Defense uh, Security Directorate, Directorate of Security there, the Afghan CIA, they started backing these guys. And they started backing them so they could use them for tit-for-tat strikes against Pakistani targets for revenge and also to fight against the Afghan Taliban. And then after about two years of that, and once everything started going crazy in Syria, again, all Barack Obama and America's fault there, in 2013, they hoisted the black flag and declared their loyalty to Baghdadi and ISIS. And so this is another creation. It's it's the entire process writ small in fast forward, right? And then this is where Afghan ISIS comes from. And then who's killing them? The Taliban. This is what's so funny about, you know, they said they were replicating the counterinsurgency doctrine from Iraq in Afghanistan. Well, if that was true, they would have been allying with the Afghan Taliban against any Arab terrorists around. It's just there weren't any. So that wasn't going to work. So they kept fighting the Taliban anyway and calling it counterterrorism. And then, you know, they kind of abandoned their counterinsurgency strategy, which was a complete catastrophe and failure anyway. And and so they ended up just fighting a war against the people of Afghanistan for no reason this the whole time. It's really incredible. You know, there's well, a- I mean, they wanted to bring them democracy and female empowerment and, you know, start yeah, sure. uh, female entrepreneurship projects like basket weaving and stuff. That's worth a few trillion dollars now, isn't it? War is the health of the State Department. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely on you want to laugh and then you remember the human cost to it and it's just absolutely staggering and what's what's really staggering about it and i i know i've i've been i've gone on some angry rants in this episode 
but I think they're it's it's, Me too. it's it, yeah well definitely I mean I'm, I'm I'm an amateur when it comes to that next to you but it's just it's 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 absolutely amazing how people are brainwashed into thinking as I was saying earlier that this is good for the economy because you know we're printing money and uh, making these companies rich and that the human the human cost all these people dying I mean all of these things that you mentioned right now must have cost at least a million lives a million people have lost their lives because of this um and, and it's just nor human beings losing their lives and people who can just think that it doesn't matter that humans lose their lives because well there's foreign policy considerations this is geopolitics you don't understand how geopolitics works we need to be out there we need to impose our footprint on the world and we need to dominate and if we don't do it then they will do it to us and it's all bullshit it's really it it, it never it it never ever makes any sense there's no way that if you're an intelligent human being who can think that you'll find any justification for any of this insanity yeah morally economically politically in totally any way whatsoever it's insane you know what? Let's end with this, man. I think this is the important thing and I don't really know what to do about it because all I can do is just be myself and tell you what I think I know and, and hope that that's persuasive. I don't you're know. doing a lot more than most people are. You're, you're putting it out there oh. and a lot of people are learning from you. So thank you for that. Well, sure. I mean, thank you for that. But I mean, the point being that it really all does come down to social psychology. It comes down to you know, I, and here's how I know this, okay? I studied this for one semester in junior college. So I know it's the most important thing in the world to everybody. And basically what it is, is everybody is concerned so much. And it's just part of being a human. We're social animals. It's how it goes, okay? I'm not trying to be too commie about it, but it is what it is. People are very concerned about what other people think about what they think. And it really matters a lot whose side you're on. It really matters a lot. if. You agree with your dad and your uncle and your gym coach and your minister or whether you don't. And, you know, you see like a rebellious teen re rebels against the way things are supposed to be, changes everything about himself, you know, hair and music and whatever, total rebellion. Otherwise, you essentially go along with your people who raise you up to believe what they believe. And there's a lot of psychological pressure to not step too far outside of that. I mean, I hear people all the time, oh, look at you running around with commies. You know what? I've been on a leftist radio station in Los Angeles for 13 years, even though I'm a libertarian, you know, married, heterosexual guy with an Anglo last name. They don't care. I get up there and I say great anti-war stuff. I should have sacrificed that. I should have not had my chance to do 13 years worth of anti-war radio interviews on the air in the second biggest market in the country, if not the world, because I'm going to get some kind of left-wing cooties on me. I'm not concerned about that other than I know that once I tell you I'm on KPFK, now you're suspicious about just how anti-American and just how commie I am and, and whether it could possibly be permissible to believe the same things that I believe, right? And so that's why it's so important, I think, as you, as you kind of led with this, you go, look, Bitcoin fixes this, which is in a way, not that you meant it this way, I'm not saying that, but in a way, like you're signaling to people as you start to interview this anti-war guy that you're not a commie. 
right? We, we hate Keynesianism. We hate inflation. We hate money printing. Well, that's like plank three of the communist manifesto, right? So look at me, everybody. I'm not a commie, but I'm about to interview this anti-war guy and let him say some anti-war things here. So hear us out for a minute, okay? This is what, what Tom Woods does for me too. Tom Woods, he's a right-leaning libertarian and people know him. He's a conservative and a, and a patriotic guy. And when he interviews me, and I don't know if he does this deliberately, we're just good friends and he just likes me. But when he interviews me, he tells his audience essentially, listen up, everybody. I agree with everything this guy says. He's right about everything. He's the smartest guy I've ever met. Tell him, Scott. And when he does that, you see what he's doing? He's kicking open the door for me. He's telling them, listen up, you Reaganites. You're about to hear some things said about Republicans that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. But I, Tom Woods, am telling you, it's okay. Just hear him out. I know he's right. You can be confident that he is. Go ahead, Scott. Let them know what they don't know. And that really helps. And I know it really helps. I can see the results of it. And again, I'm a capitalist myself. I'm not a leftist. I never have been a leftist in my whole life. I've, I've never been a culturally right-wing guy either. I've always just been a libertarian. But I've had Tom Woods fans tell me so many times that, man, you're a hard pill to swallow. But I know that you're right. I know you're right because Tom says so. And in fact, I, know, I knew it was okay to listen to you because Tom said so. And then once I heard you explain it, now I had to change my mind. In fact, I'll tell you a story. A guy came up to me and it was at a, a Ron Paul event in, in uh, Lake Jackson. And I gave a speech up there and was selling some books and stuff. And a guy said to me, he goes, you know, you're the hardest one of Tom Wood's guests for me to deal with and, and listen to. And I kind of just cracked the joke and said, yeah, well, you know, I rub people the wrong way sometimes, you know, whatever. I could be kind of abrasive. And he goes, no, 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 that's not it, man. And he explained to me, he goes, me and my father and my brothers, we've always been Ronald Reagan guys. We're conservative Republican patriots. And we supported every war this whole time for 40 years. And then you made me have to finally confess. I was wrong. And you could tell it wasn't funny, right? Like it wasn't ironic. It wasn't anything. The guy was hurt. And he was like, I had to go tell my dad. We were wrong about all this shit. I'm so sorry. but. F Ronald Reagan and what he did, dad, it ain't right. And he had to go tell his brothers. It ain't right. We're all changing our mind about this shit now in the Thompson household. We don't believe in this stuff anymore because uh, I read Scott's book and I'm over it. But it was like, dude, it really hurt him. It sucked. It sucked. And it, he was like, dude, you're telling me I, I wasted my life. And not just like I was wrong, but I was, I was wrong supporting horrible, wrong things. Cruel, horrible things. But I had to suck it up. I had, I, I had to accept that you were right. He's like confessing all this stuff to me. Like this is hard for him. And the only thing that made it possible was Tom Woods saying, trust me, everybody, this guy's not a commie. He's my guy. And I'm telling you, he's right. I've read his stuff. I know his stuff. I trust him. So you can too. So that's, I think, the challenge for all right-leaning anti-war folk is go out there and make yourselves heard. I mean, doesn't it suck the way like somehow when somebody says anything anti-war, like you're supposed to have to 
be stuck with this image of Janis Joplin and her giant round glasses and day glow bubble letters and like dirt weed and just 1967 hippie crap that has nothing to do with us. You know, I've never met Michael Moore, big fat millionaire communist hypocrite who thinks you should be his slave and also that war is bad, except when Hillary Clinton is waging it. Why am I stuck with Michael Moore around my neck? I shouldn't have to be with that entire left-wing millstone. And no offense to Susan Sarandon, I'm sure she's great. But every time leftists, uh, you know, leftist celebrity Hollywood types, you know, do this stuff, Sean Penn out there, oh, he's a hawk now, but back when he was, you know, the guy from Fast, Fast Times at Ridgemont High opposing Iraq War II, he's making a opposition to Iraq War II look like a Spicoli stupid thing, right? When what we need is anti-war patriots. We need Republicans. We need combat veterans, you know, with or without their fatigues, with their American flags, explaining that this is national suicide, man. This is not good for our country. I have to tell you, man, in 2003, I went to the the um, giant marches in Austin, February the 15th and March the 15th of 2003, when millions of people around the world, especially on March 15th, but on February 2, millions of people around the world came out for those marches and including like 50 or 75,000 people came to Austin to, pro- uh, to protest against that war. And it was something else, but almost everyone there was a liberal or a progressive or a leftist because it was a bunch of Houston oil men in charge. They didn't know nothing about the neocons or any of that. It was just a bunch of corrupt Houston oil men and they just didn't trust W. Bush and they didn't trust Cheney or their motives. So they were by default good on it. It was the Republican war. Fine. But you know what, man, there were a lot of right wingers who knew better than that war. And even like, you know, maybe they're somewhat marginal, but like what we consider now, what we call the Patriot movement, which is like the sort of like the, the more peaceful side of the, of the militia movement of that time. Like these guys didn't believe in W. Bush from Connecticut, Skull and Bones boy, George Bush's son. They didn't believe in him. They knew better than Middle East wars and all that. They just spent the 1990s complaining about the Gulf War illness and how the government had betrayed all the soldiers that got sick from fighting over there and all that. And yet, where were they during those protests? Because man, in my daydreams, they all show up in their Vietnam War fatigues or with their dress uniform on, with their American flag and their Republican Party registration card in their hand, and they get up there and they lead the parade. And they say, Saddam didn't do 9-11. They're lying to you. And they stop the war. Because look at all these right-wing conservative Christian war veteran patriots are saying, we are not so damn stupid to believe that the guy with the mustache is the same thing as the guy with the beard. And you're not going to pull this fast one on us. Where were they? They just couldn't go to a protest where there were going to be hippies there. They couldn't go to a protest where there were going to be commies there and rage against the machine types there. But they did exist by the tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands in this country. There was an anti-war right. And they were most of them Vietnam War veterans or, or military veterans of, of approximately that era who knew better and who didn't trust Bush one iota. And if they had been really out front and really public, they would have made it okay for so many more right-wingers also to come out 
and oppose it all. Remember what Ron Paul did in 2008? He just broke a magic spell. He got up there and he said, in no uncertain terms, roughly paraphrasing here, look at me, I'm German stock, I'm a Republican politician from Texas, and I'm telling you this is all a bunch of crap, and you're a damn fool if you believe it. You don't have to believe it. I don't. And people went, wow, great. And what, 20 million people overnight turn anti-war because of that, because he made it okay. Because Ron Paul isn't Michael Moore, because he's not Jane Fonda, because he is a Republican congressman, white male, and a, and a decent man, a doctor, not a lawyer, still married to his first wife, his, sweet, his sweetheart since they were 16 years old, salt of the earth kind of guy. And he goes, look, if I don't have to believe in this crap, then you certainly don't have to believe in this crap. And people were just like, oh my God, what a relief. Oh my God, what a relief. I mean, and, and even in 08, especially in 12, but even in 08, he got more donations for military guys, retired and active duty than any other candidate, all the other candidates combined. He got more donations than McCain and all the rest of the Republicans combined because he said, George Washington's constitution and peace. And all those military men who took an oath to that constitution said, this is my guy. This is my guy. That's what I signed an oath for, is Ron Paul's constitution, not George Bush's. And so that was it. And Donald Trump did the same thing. Donald Trump, remember, was up against George Bush's brother. So what's he going to do? He took a Rock War II and used it as the arrow in Jeb Bush's heart right? We can't elect this guy. His brother lied us into Iraq. And remember in South Carolina, they said, oh my God, did, I can't believe you just accused George Bush of lying us into war. And he's like, well, certainly wasn't true. And then the next day, he I always got the numbers wrong. Somebody correct me, I had the numbers wrong, but still he blew them out in the primary the next day. He got like a third or half of the vote and they shared the rest. Blew them out of the water. Because the Republican right in South Carolina, the most militarized state in the union, they said, well, do we believe in what we believed in yesterday, that George Bush meant well and tried to do the right thing and sent us to war for a good reason? Or, we do, or do we believe our leader now? And Donald, and Donald Trump's the leader now, and Donald Trump says that whole thing was freaking stupid. We should have never done it. And they chose their new leader. And, they, and again, Donald Trump ain't Michael Moore. So if Donald Trump says it's okay to hate W. Bush, and to think that everything that George W. Bush was stupid and wrong, then it's fine. And of course, you got to love Donald Trump because every word out of his mouth is pure hyperbole. So he can't just say, boy, that Iraq war was terrible. He goes, going to the Middle East was the worst decision that any American president ever made. It's the worst thing for America that anyone ever did ever. And we'll never forgive them. Like, all right, man, give me a Republican presidential candidate who talks like that. Because what happened, right? You cre he, cre he recreated the America First movement. He recreated the anti-war right by talking that way, by passing out permission slips for right-wingers. You don't have to be Mr. Macho, tough guy, whoop ass all the time. You could be smart. You could be, hey, conservative and conserve our resources and be prudent and wise and calm and adult instead of blowing your whole wad, blowing up other people's countries. In the minds of so many on the right. But then he got into office and he continued all the wars. He didn't know. Ah, sure. But you know what? Yeah, never mind that. I mean, that's a whole other show. But 
and I'm happy to do it someday. But even now, you know what? His defenders say, well, at least he didn't start any new wars. And that doesn't have to be the line, right? The line could be, oh, yeah, well, he killed ISIS a lot better than Obama did. Oh, yeah, well, he bombed the Taliban a lot more than Obama did. Oh, yeah, well, he loosened the rules of engagement in Somalia, kill them N-words good. That could be their argument. That would have been the same people's argument during the W. Bush years. The more blood we spill, the better. But when it comes to Trump, they go, well, he did spill a lot of blood. That's true. But he didn't start any new wars, and that's progress. So all I'm saying is like, you know what? Praise and and appreciate the shift in sentiment on the right. And we can see when it comes to Israel-Palestine, it gets a lot iffier. But you know what, too, man? I think you may have noticed. The right wing is more anti-Israel than ever before. And it's the images coming out of Gaza. You just can't deny the atrocities going on there. And there are so many people who they took America first seriously. Defend America first. What are we doing with these entangling alliances? And now you're trying to tell them, no, that was just a gimmick. That was just to fool suckers. And they're like, wait, but am I the sucker? Because I thought we meant that. And I saw a great tweet by Elijah Schaefer, who's a a former Glenn Beck guy, one of the leaders of opinion on the Trumpian new right. I don't know how close to Trump he is, but anyway, on that part of the new right. And he had this great tweet about this yesterday or the day before that. I think yesterday. No, day before yesterday. About how conservative Inc., is in a real panic about the the mood out in the country. And I don't know like what's the proportion exactly, but there's a major proportion, and especially among young people, who they're just not married to Zionism at all. And you're never going to convince them to be now. Not after everything we've been through. And especially if they learn the role of the Israelis in lying us into Iraq War II and trying to get us into a full-fledged war in Syria and the rest of that. There's a lot of resentment built up. And hell, even... You know, what, two or three years ago, there was a poll that said that young evangelical Christians don't support Israel. Because you know what? You promised me the rapture back in 2003. You promised me all this magic stuff was going to happen. Jesus was going to come back and all this stuff. Well, Jerry Falwell is dead. Pat Robertson is dead. And they didn't go up to heaven in their bodies and neither did the rest of us. So I don't want to hear any magic BS about Israel anymore. If I let, if I support Israel killing children, then Jesus is going to come and take me to heaven without dying. The hell out of my face with that crap. You'd have to be a baby boomer to believe that crap. And young evangelical Christians don't. And so, you know, it's a huge shift on the right. And, and this is, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but my point is to encourage any libertarians or any right-leaning people who agree at all about this non-interventionist foreign policy to make yourselves useful. Get out there and just show, just be an example of the fact that you do not have to be some kind of leftist to oppose these wars. And, and, By all means, if you're an anti-war leftist, be one and pressure the liberals from the left. That's your role in the world, for God's sake, please. But for everyone else, everyone else needs to know, all the people out there in the country, your neighbors, the people you go to church with, the people in your city, they need to know that there is an anti-war right and that there are anti-war, non-interventionist libertarians, that you do not have to be a patchouli stinking hippie to oppose American foreign policy. And I think that message is getting out more and more. The slogan, America First, is fantastic for that. Um, that's what it always meant back in the day, was defend America first. 
And, and who could argue with that? What American patriot could argue with that? Who, who could say that Ukraine is our eastern frontier? Get the hell out of here and get your hand out of my pocket with that crap. You know, you see this more and more. America subsidizes Israel with $4 billion a year and all this military aid and all this. But they have a higher standard of living than most Americans. They got free college, free health care, and per capita income higher than many places in America. Why in the world should we subsidize them? American poor people got to subsidize Israeli rich people? Why? And Americans are starting to really resent that. It used to be rather Jennings and Brokaw would tell you why you have to accept it. And that was just good enough. But people more and more are like, man, I got people in my neighborhood living under bridges, living in the woods because they can't afford to live inside because our government keeps printing money to give it away to other people who have plenty. It ain't right. And anyone can see it. Anyone can see it. You know, all this George W. Bush stuff about, yeah, war makes us strong and, and look at us kick ass. Well, look at us now. If war is good for the economy, how do you explain this after 25 years of war, huh? If war's, you know, the health of the state, how do you explain this? It's the health of the state. It ain't the health of our country. It ain't the health of our society. It's national suicide. It's everything that's tearing our country apart. And, and including all the refugee crisis and the rest too. Um, you know, a lot of that is people coming from Africa and from Central Asia, from the destabilization of America's terror wars, just like in the last decade, fleeing from Obama's wars into Europe and driving the rise of the new right there as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been one of the most fun activities on Twitter over the last couple of months, uh, watching as Israel's genocide in Gaza unfolds. You see all of these moron uh, America firsters, except when it comes to Israel. And, you know, when they want to be all macho about, you know, no more money for Ukraine and no more money for this and that. And we want to end foreign aid and we don't want to, we, we want to put America first. And then you see everybody commenting, it's like, except Israel, right? And of yeah. course, the answer is always except Israel. You know, all of these fucking more like Nikki Haley. They're not getting away with it, right? Yeah, it's not working anymore, and you and you can see it in their eyes. Like, well, I mean, you, you can't really see it in Nikki Haley's eyes. She's a she, she's a she's a she's a soulless puppet uh, that has no brain and no ability to function. But no objection with, there. With, with with some of them who can usually think, you can see the burden of being out there saying, "America first, You know, we 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 we're we're out there for conservative value. We don't want to spend money on Ukraine. We don't want to spend money on this and this and that. But we need to give fourteen billion dollars for Israel because it has to destroy all of Gaza. It's very important that we destroy all the critical infrastructure in Gaza and leave yeah. no building standing because you know that's important for our national security. Because else, if we don't do that, you know who knows. But well, you know, only issue with Trump and and he is the worst Zionist. He's as bad as Joe Biden. Yeah, he was absolutely water. horrible on Israel-Palestine the whole time that he was in power, pushing the horrible Abraham Accord scam and the so-called deal of the century, which is never going to be a bribe enough to work to get away with the murder they're trying to get away with there. And moving the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the seizure of the Golan Heights and officially declaring that the settlements on the West Bank aren't illegal and all of the rest of that. I mean, his whole Abraham Accord scam is really what helped to lead 
to the current crisis over there. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this clip. He's on some guy's podcast talking about it. So sad. It's just a travesty, he says, that Israel lost their ownership of the U.S. Congress, which they rightfully owned, he said. But unfortunately, oh, it's so terrible. Elon Omar and these other, you know, minority leftists are coming into the Congress. And now Israel doesn't even completely, totally own and control the Congress as they rightfully should anymore. It's very, very sad, Donald Trump says. It's still unbelievable. Again, because he talks in such hyperbole. He can't just speak this treason in any sort of reasonable way. He's got to be like, they rightfully owned it. But now they don't, which is very, very sad. It would just, have never happened on my watch. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. no, the, the, the whole uh, hysteria around this. And it's, it's, it's been very fascinating finding all of these people who try to think of themselves as anti-establishment, try and make it out to be that Rashida Tlaib and a bunch of college kids protesting with Palestine flags really yeah. are the problem of America. This is the oh, catastrophe that I is know. ruining America. It's not. And the, here I thought it was Bush and Obama and Biden. You know, yeah, it's not the <laughs> billions of dollars that are going out there to blow up civilians where the entire world is watching as the U.S. Congress, like a bunch of whores, every one of them stands up and claps to hand out yep. that money to go kill innocent civilians while the Israeli politicians are saying there are no innocent civilians. We want to kill them all. We want to drive them all out. And then people think, yeah, well, you know, this is the conservative thing to do. This is the natural thing to do. But this is the America first thing to do. Yep. That's it, it's not an issue that we're printing out fourteen billion dollars and providing aircraft carriers for this complete mass murder genocide out there. No, the thing that we need to look out for is a bunch of brown kids in college saying mean words. It's, yep. it, it's been absolutely atrocious. But you know, one of the things that uh, on the issue of left and right, one of the, one of my major. Um, black bill moments if you want or major kind of realizing just how messed up america was when i was in grad school in the 90, in the 2000s not in the 90s i'm not that old yet but when obama got elected and that it was astonishing watching how the anti-war left just stopped existing it was even before that. It was in it was in 06. And they climbed the Democrats climbed back into Congress on Cindy Sheehan's back in 2006. And that was it. And Nancy Pelosi announced at the beginning of 07 that George Bush can have all the money he wants for his surge escalation in the war. And he was threaten war with Iran. And that was it. But then Obama was supposed to be, you know, the great big hope of America and he was going to change everything. And then he yep. went in and then the wars just continued. And so well, I you think you know it's funny because I've often thought it is you know, we have really great left-wing journalists and commentators who have stayed great on this stuff all along, and I don't know where we'd be without them. But the the mass of the anti-war left was gone, and now they're back. And I wonder whether, you know, how regretful that might be. I mean, I already talked about, and I see this on the right. They're like, well, look, if all these leftists support the Palestinians, then I must be on the Israeli side because I just hate leftists so much and this kind of thing. And then the leftists... A lot of them are young, and so they do all this stupid crap like blocking the freeway, which... Yeah, it's ridiculous. Wouldn't you immediately jump to like, well, what's the worst that could happen? Well, somebody could miss uh, their baby being born, or someone could be dying in the back of a hospital right now, and they're trying to get them to the trauma unit, or somebody could, you know, miss a job interview and lose their home and their children. 
Like you don't have the right to mess with people like that. The people on the freeway, the average civilians of your city, the hell are these people doing? And it just drives people into a rage. I saw a cop beat the crap out of some lady for blocking traffic in LA. And I'm like, tough. And I hate cops, but she should get the F out of the road. And, and how dare she go and obstruct regular people who didn't do anything? And, and how brain dead are these people? I mean, if you're the anti-war left, what's your job? Your job is pressuring liberal Democrat office holders. That's your target. Nobody else gives a crap what you say or think. It's liberal Democrats have to feel that pressure from the left. So why not target liberal Democrat office holders? Especially like in California, you see stuff in California, they're blocking the freeway in LA and, and all this stuff. Go and, and find every Democrat on the state or national level. Find all your congressmen and find, and for that matter, on the state level and for hell, I don't know, the mayor. Take all the most influential Democrats that you can find and protest them. Why are you going to block the damn traffic? And it just makes people, hell, it makes me mad as hell at them. I can't imagine what someone who's already a hawk thinks when he sees these people blocking traffic with no regard whatsoever. I mean, what are they doing? They're acting like the goddamned Israelis collectively punishing innocent people for whatever their problem is. They got no right to do that at all. I've seen right-wingers like Mike Cernovich extremely regretfully. I had thought that he would be kind of open-minded about this. It hasn't really come up that much since he really came to prominence. And I thought that maybe I would even have a crack at, at talking to him about this stuff. And his immediate reaction to all this stuff is, I hate leftists. Look at these leftists in the street, taking down American flags, blocking traffic harassing innocent Jewish students and restaurant owners and whoever, not truly threatening them, but being stupid asses to them. And for, to hear him tell it, well, I just could never be associated with anything like that. If the pro-Palestinian people are this horrible and hateful, then I hate them and I don't care about the Palestinians. And that's how right-wingers are. They just don't want to get those left-wing cooties on them. And I kind of wonder, man, maybe we'd have just been better without the anti-war left. We just have the anti-war right. Because leftists are no good in a fight anyway, right? If it's a real war, you're going to turn to the right-wingers to protect you. So, like, who cares whether the liberals support a war? The question is whether the right-wingers are going to sign up and go fight the war for you. In fact, there's a new study out today that says that American whites are, you know, being recruited into the military at, at a much lower rate than previously because you know, probably a lot of this woke stuff and because of the terror wars. They're the ones who fought the terror wars and got betrayed. I almost rather just focus on that. But I mean, the anti-war left serves their purpose, but their purpose should be to harass important Democratic Party officials in power. You know, and that means leaders of the party and that means mayors and state representatives and senators, state senators and representatives for that matter that build that consensus. Uh, we're just not going to tolerate this foreign policy anymore and let those liberals know that the leftists are going to have my ass. I'm sorry, Mr. Donor, but I'm going to lose all of my voters. I'm better off with less money and more voters. And that's what the equation has to come down to, right? It's just the basic logic of going clean for Gene, right? 
unless you're a patchouli stinking hippie, you don't like patchouli stinking hippies. So if patchouli stinking hippies want to actually influence something, they should lose the patchouli, shave off the white guy dreadlocks, and then go and talk to Democrats and tell them, look, we're organized. We have a lot of people and we will make sure to primary you and we will make sure to all stay home and punish you. If you want to serve Israel first, this is going to be your last term in the House of Representatives. You son of a bitch. And yes, we mean it. And yes, we can back up the threat. You will never be elected again in this district. You're making enemies every day and we're organized and you're toast. That's it. It's the only thing. That's going to do any good. So get the hell out of the freeway and lay siege to some office buildings. Yeah, I mean, remember Rothbard. You would imagine that Rothbard would be the most extreme right person in most people's imagination. But really, libertarianism sort of transcends left and right. And so Rothbard spent a lot of time working with the leftists. He wrote, he edited the magazine, a journal that was called the Left right review i think or something like that mm-hmm. it was just called left and right i think left and right yeah and it was all leftists and rightists talking about the bad things about the state and i think these things can be overplayed uh, ultimately as i was mentioning earlier what i was trying to get at with the way that the anti-war left collapsed after the uh, obama election is that uh, the purpose of the anti-war left and the anti-war right is to garner legitimacy for the left or right when they're not in power. Because when you're not in power, you can afford to say, we yeah. are anti-war, we are we care about children being bombed, we care about not wasting American money. And then when you're in power, that's when you brush aside all of these ideals and you right. focus on just um, doing the bidding for all of the... That's why the libertarians are here. We stay good when liberals are in power or when conservatives are in power. Exactly. <laughs> And hey, Ben, I'm sorry, but I really got to jump off here. I got to still edit my show together for the KPFK show this afternoon. All right, no problem. Thank you so much for all of your time and all of your insight and all of the wonderful, amazing rants. Really appreciate it. And keep doing what you're doing. It's, uh, it's, it's an honorable, honorable task, what you are up to. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Have a good day.